Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, And with that, we will... Throw to our 1987 season recap and see you with an all-new chapter of the Super League War next week. See you then. This is actually a two-parter. We're actually going to, from time to time, look at a particular year in rugby league, check out what was going on, uh, you know, go through all the ins and outs. So uh, we're going to start with 1987. I'm so pumped for this. This is the year that I really got into footy. And and this is why we're doing this first. So uh, you're slightly older than me. I... My first active season was 1988, so that will be the next one we do. But beyond that, I'm open to ideas, so any listener suggestions, uh, I welcome them. Uh, anyone who suggests 1999 will be instantly banished from the RLD fraternity. <laughs> if, if, any, if any flog or gronk sends that in. <laughs> uh, but I, I should say at the start, this should be viewed as a bit of a companion piece to the earlier history corners we did on the birth of the Brisbane Broncos and also the mini one we did on the Ray Price and Wally Lewis books. In my opinion, the Brisbane Broncos History Corner is the finest work you have done. Okay, well, well, hopefully this one can go some way to, to matching that because uh, really, really interesting season of football, 1987. And when I, when I was, before I started researching it, I always considered it this kind of anomaly in the 80s. You had this like Parramatta Canterbury domination and I, I never really reckoned it, but reckon with it but I think 1987 was really a year where things in rugby league started to change it was a real turning point well it certainly was given that you had the last Sydney cricket ground grand final and then you went to the SFS the year after that was the big generational switch mm. uh, yeah one of many with Tina with, Turner yeah the, the last <laughs> year of the traditional Sydney comp with with obviously the new teams coming in so just to just to lay it out what we're going to do tonight is have a look at the landscape in general, talk a, a bit about some of the things that were going on, and then next week we'll focus particularly on the on-field action um, with a focus on the grand finalists, Manly and Canberra. A cliffhanger. Yep. A cliffy landhanger. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I thought the best way to set it, set this up was to just touch on a, a bit of what, what was going on uh, on-field with a look at, at the, the Dally M race and then also the Rugby League Week players poll. So we'll start with the Dally M's. This was won by Peter Sterling that year. Uh, capping it, we've got some Sterling talk at the back end of this week's episode, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But an amazing two-year stretch for Sterling. 1987, he won the Dally M, won the Dally M halfback of the year, won the Rothmans, won the Golden Boot, won the Rugby League Week player of the year. This was coming off in 1986 where he won the Dally M, won the Rugby League Week Player of the Year, by all accounts was robbed of a Rothmans. <laughs> uh, he scored a Rugby League Week 10 in both seasons, the first player to ever get two of those. 
he was definitely the premier player at that time, and that's all you'd hear about. And you you got to remember, this is coming off a run where he'd already won a Dalian in 84. He'd already won the three comps with Para. Like, he'd already... When you think about Sterlo's peak and his run, like, it's an eight-year run of greatness. Can't get looking for the Immortals. Yeah. So... I. I don't want to, you know, relitigate this for the thousandth time. There was another great article about Alfie Langer's case for immortality during the week. Um, so I don't want to get bogged down in that, but just want to say, like, what a what a couple of years from Sterlo. And you, you left out the, the biggest cherry on top, the trip to Long Beach for the origin. Uh, I didn't leave that out <laughs> at all. We're, we're getting to that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Sterlo won the Dallium. Craig Coleman was actually leading when the vote went b- behind doors and subsequently didn't poll a vote for the rest of the year and, and ended up being uh, pipped for second and third place as well as first with Clayton Friend and Terry Lamb um, getting the minor positions. Clayton Friend for Norse, was it? Yeah. So that was on field. The The players poll, as always, threw up some, some juicy stuff. I love with that players poll, there was always one controversial thing every always, year. Yeah. Um, this one, I, I guess the big story was that 40% of players answered with a yes to the question, are drugs used by players to improve performance? That was in the heyday of like amphetamines and that sort of gear mm. and steroids were just coming in. Yeah. And it was considered like a bit of a gamesmanship edge yeah, vibe yeah. at that point. Mm. Yeah. But it was beyond the, the innocence of earlier eras where players were just given a pet pill yeah. and, and didn't really think about it. Like players in this era knew what yeah. they were doing to, yeah, yeah. to a greater extent. Uh, another question uh, posed: What was the biggest problem in in the game in in the modern game? <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the greatest single problem was others. So that was forty one percent just said, you know, things not listed. But of the the named issues, can you guess what the number one problem was? Referees. Referees. <laughs> and uh, some some novel set suggestions on on how to fix. The, the problems in the refereeing ranks, Andrew. I just want to get your opinion on whether you think these ideas would have worked. Most players claim they need help, either by video replays or an extra referee on the field. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's go back to one ref. <laughs> uh, keep in mind that many of the, the people crying out to go back to the old system were players playing in this era. <laughs> Uh, and the the players named the best players in each position, Gary Jack at fullback, Slippery Morris on the wing, Michael O'Connor in centre, Terry Lamb 5'8", Sterlow at halfback, Wayne Pierce lock Les Davidson second rower, Peter Tunks prop, and Mal Cochran the hooker. Mal Cochran had a season that year, didn't he? Yeah, I think I think he won the Rothmans maybe the year before. Yeah, but yeah. He was um he he was up there for a while. Uh, and you mentioned that it was the last year of of the the SCG hosting hosting rugby league on a regular basis, the last grand final there, uh, until, is it is it next year we're playing a grand final at the SCG? Are we really? Yeah. Are we serious? We are, yeah. That, that's what, what they're doing with not having the SFS and Homebush available. Not Suncorp? No. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I hate that. So the, the move from the, the SCG wasn't really lamented by current players. Um, Paul Sirenen's uh, comment, it is kind of across the board what the players thought. The ground's atrocious. When we played in the semis last year, it was a block of granite. By the end of the semis last year, I had grazers all over me. The ground was so hard. And this year, as soon as it rains, the ground is a bog, which was the eternal story for, for you know the life of rugby league at the SCG. And yet, despite that, 20 former players who were polled 
14 were outraged at the idea of moving from the SCG. Uh, Johnny Raper said, A lot of my blood was spilled out there on grand final day and I'm very much opposed to the change. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we're not listening to Johnny Raper for for moving the game forward. Um, Interestingly, Arthur Summons and Norm Proven were both in the minority, being that they did favour the change. Summons un- are unreservedly saying he didn't want like nostalgia to get in the way of progress. Those guys have always been level-headed and yeah. intelligent. Mm. And it's an honour to have them on the trophy. Yeah. For that reason. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, and the other thing about the SFS was it was also the end of Redfern Oval as a first-grade venue with Souths moving to the SFS full-time in 1988. Uh, and... There was, there was an article in the in the Sydney Morning Herald um, kind of lamenting the loss of Redfern Oval. And uh, the, the writer, David Rowland, said, A couple of signs around the ground said it all. Vale, R.I.P. Redfern, was plastered to the canteen wall. I, I think his later quote in this article says it all, really. If you haven't got red and green eyes, it's extremely hard to imagine why anyone would be so attached to a stingy, miserable-looking place like Redfern Oval. The facilities are disgraceful, an insult to players, officials, supporters, and the media. One commentator described the Oval as man's inhumanity to man. (laughs) How can you write that (laughs) sentence and then say, you know, everything's... Well, we're talking about um, Brookvale Oval tonight, and, and we're in the same spot as yeah. they were back then with that. Mm. Rose-coloured glasses have killed more rugby league initiatives than anything. Uh, we're going to hear a lot more rose-coloured glasses talk over the course of of the course of this history corner. Part of it, we we, we touched on this in the um, in the Brisbane one, so I don't want to go too far into it, but I'll, I'll just remind and you know let any listeners who didn't listen to that that one know that. The recommendation of the New South Wales Rugby League's committee was to reduce the number of teams to 12. They were all set on on doing that and then somehow along the way decided, actually, despite these recommendations, let's go to 16 teams, uh, which caused a you know kind of market panic among off-contract players with a lot of inflated prices and contracts and very prescient by Norm Tasker, who took over the edit- editorship of Rugby League Week during that year. Uh, I'll just read this. The expansion of the competition to 16 teams is going to create problems the league hasn't even thought of yet. Practical things like maintaining enough resolve within new clubs to wear the early difficulties and build. Already they're finding it tough. Players won't sign until the coach has been signed and the coach won't sign until he knows whether he has enough talent with which to work. Setting the trend for the last 30 years of coaching (laughs) clauses in every contract. Well, again, go back to the Brisbane Broncos history corner, the formation of the Broncos, and, and listen to the uh, Gold Coast Chargers. Was it Seagulls or Chargers? Seagulls yeah. uh, <laughs> establishment. And and more more prescience by the, the Rugby League Week, talking about the proposed introduction of a salary cap. Sherlock wrote, So the New South Wales Rugby League are looking at a salary cap on player payments. If I could just respectfully remind the gents at Phillips Street that similar airy-fairy schemes have been tried in the far, in the past. League secretaries are too ambitious, success-hungry, shrewd, and dare I say it, cunning, to ever let that sort of scheme work. (laughs) Nothing that ever gets suggested that involves change is ever met with anything but incandescent (laughs) negativity. (laughs) But but I mean... He he was they they were completely right. Like what what's the longest streak of not having a salary cap 
scandal. I mean, Canberra like did it within like a year of the cap being introduced the first time. Then Super League wipes it out for a while, and basically it's every couple of years since we've got it back. Well, I think you can argue that the comp's been a lot tighter since the cap year. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I definitely am pro salary cap. It's just the response to every change suggestion is yeah. always like, get off, the, you know, it'll never work, you know. <laughs> Uh, an, an interesting thing, and I want I want you to keep this in your hat because it plays a part in how the grand final played out. But this year they introduced the headbin uh, because of the perceived dangers of concussions. And um, a leading medical expert w- was interviewed in the Rugby League Week and said this, It's a joke and it's dangerous. If a player is seriously injured to the extent he needs 10 minutes recuperation, he should be off the field for the rest of the match. Head injuries need to be observed by qualified medical people. And from what I'm told, this is not happening. Anyway, 10 minutes is ridiculous. I'm dead against it and will fight to have it banned in Queensland. He was a Queensland doctor. It's only hearsay, mind you, but I'm told some clubs use it to disguise any type of injury. Quite frankly, they're better off doing that than using it for its design purpose. Talk about ahead of your time. And it's it was really interesting to hear that, like hear concussions being talked about in that way. When the narrative has always been like, oh, you know, we didn't really know the damage they caused, but, you know, now we know. It seems like the medical community at least knew that it wasn't a good thing to be regularly concussed. Well, I I don't think it's – the CTE is all new and everything, but I don't think – Brains rattling around in skulls was new to doctors. Yeah, for a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. But, but like, think about this. Nineteen eighty-seven. They were still having an old trainer hold up three fingers and say, yeah, "How yeah. many? How many fingers am I holding mm. up?" Like that was the extent of your of your yeah. head trauma analysis. Mm. Yeah, and, and the doctor went on to say that the the league basically pulled this idea of a, a head bin where you go off for ten minutes out of nowhere, not backed by any like medical science. They said they had a. Um, this doctor was on a committee outlining some changes or some some ideas to implement to reduce the damage from concussions and the like, and this wasn't one of those recommendations at all. So it doesn't seem to stem from any good science. Yeah, but yeah, that was that was just an interesting little little thing. I thought it's it's almost uh, the the year of the harbinger. Another good rugby league digest word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a bit of a lightning round of, of general news, but uh, this was the, the year that the Channel 10 miniseries, The First Kangaroos, aired. Um, you got to remember, this was the golden age of the, the Australian miniseries. Yeah. I used to love a miniseries. Bangkok Hilton, Body Murder, etc. Yeah. Dennis Waterman, the English actor, played one of, one of the um, starring roles. And uh, Tony Martin, uh, E Street Tony Martin. Blue Murders Tony Martin. Blue Murders Tony Martin. Uh, he played Dan Frawley. Um, the, there were a couple of cameos by current players in Wayne Pierce, who played Sandy Pierce, and E2, who I don't know who he played. but Brian Bevan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the first kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh, But yeah, so um, what wasn't well reviewed, uh, Rampaging Roy Slaven actually had a, a serious review in The Herald where he said, Unfortunately, the first Kangaroos manages to perfectly avoid both action and drama by being a piece of work that falls between two stools. All the film does is propagate the myth that to be Australian is to be the lovable underdog with superior moral values to our British adversaries. The Kangas are all good men, strong and true. The Brits are scurrilous, underhanded and devious. That's about right, isn't it? (laughs) So I, I haven't seen this and I actually tried to see if I could find a copy and couldn't. But I think they must have like tried to lean into the body line 
formula right. and create a narrative that that wasn't true to life. <laughs> uh, but uh, neither Wayne Pierce or ET had a speaking role, and ET's only appearance uh, was a topless uh, scene shoveling coal into the ship's furnaces. <laughs> but what about? Uh, I hope they showed the the com- the accommodation <laughs> in, in all its ingloriousness. <laughs> uh, but I actually just I thought I'd get a second opinion. I went to the first Kangaroos IMDb page to see if there were any reviews, and uh, so there, there was one review which likened the the miniseries as humour to. Uh, Finnish screenwriter Aki Korismaki. So, (laughs) high praise. (laughs) You want to talk about a niche review? (laughs) Holy dilly. Um, One of my favorite uh, aspects of rugby league management in this period and, you know, for the next 10 years or so is their constant desire to class up the game, but they're just meatheads themselves and they don't really understand high culture but they try to implement it because they think it makes them look smarter. A.K.A. Yanni. A.K.A. Yanni. And uh, and this grand final breakfast uh, celebration. I'll just read this from uh, the Sydney Morning Herald. On the eve of what could be a most attractive 1987 grand final, rugby league officials are planning to push the game's image up market. This emerged yesterday after the inaugural grand final breakfast, which provided, among other extraordinary scenes, the sight of Slam and Sam Bacco, the giant Canberra prop forward, sitting with members of the Henley String Quartet, who had played selections from Vivaldi, Mozart, Handel, Dvorak and Strauss in the grand ballroom of Sydney's Regent Hotel. I think Sam Bacco was the Sam Thiday of his his era. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And speaking of... Two Queensland legends. I, I thought we'd we'd have a look at the origin of that year because it, it really opened my eyes up. So this was 1987. Origin was seven years old, and the narrative I've kind of come to understand is that it's become it. You know, it's kind of eventually become this you know unruly beast that's you know eating rugby league despite its success. But it was kind of already like that in 1987. That was my first origin that I saw was 87. This this actually got me really angry reading this. Like this was a this was Sherlock in in Rugby League Week talking about the disruption to the season that Origin causes. State of Origin football, I know, makes for a very very big television event on Tuesday night, but it's doing nothing for our weekends. Watson and I were appalled at the quality of the football last Sunday and rather amazed at the difference a few missing personalities make. It should have been a warning to the powers that be that weekends cannot be left bereft of quality football, as was last week, lest the game become out of sight, out of mind. Like, we've known about the problem <laughs> for 31 years. <laughs> Like three decades we've known about this problem and done nothing about it. Inertia. I, I just, I, I'm staggered. I'm, I mean, I'm not. I... Bet, to talk about relitigating. How many times have we gone through the options? It's rocking a hub place. But have we ever? All, all we do is like move the day. Oh, let's let's try a Thursday. Let's put it Sunday night. You know, like we've never addressed the actual problem. <laughs> I think we all agree that standalone is the only way. Yeah, and even more depressingly, it had already like all but buried test football in the public imagination uh, and in the administration. Like, the the test against New Zealand, which Australia ended up losing, which for many of the players in that team was the first test loss they'd ever had, that test was played on a Tuesday night less than a week after an Origin match. Crazy. And, and like, Arthur, Ken Arthurson's comments about 
international football kind of sum up that mentality. The representative calendar is very heavy next year. There's a three-test series against Great Britain, a bicentenary match between Australia and the rest of the world, as well as the normal program of State of Origin and Sydney country matches. As it stands, there'll be very little available time to fit in the World Cup final. (laughs) (laughs) The World Cup final was an afterthought for you. But yeah, it's crazy how quickly like Origin just overshadowed everything. I, d- I didn't realise it was that sudden. It lie. I mean, I can, I can just store a picture of the Channel 7 news footage of Sterlo walking through Disneyland. That's yeah. all. <laughs> so, uh, I, um, I know 87 was my first origin, but I didn't know it was that big until about 93. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, while, while we're on the subject of test football, uh, a, a major brouhaha was caused by the failure of the, the league to pay Australian players for test appearances. And that's almost... Um, like it is now with minnows. Yeah. But rugby union players were getting a per diem for their tours that was as much as the rugby league players were getting. Well, they were running a farcical faux amateur setup. Yeah, but this wasn't even the, the, the faux amateurism part. This was like legit amateurism and their... Yeah, but I mean, they had to inflate the per diems to make it worth their while. No, but I, yeah. <laughs> no, I was I was more like that's what they're willing to put above the table, like let alone the the brown right, paper right, right. bag scenarios. But um, we talked about in in the Brisbane history corner that Ken Arthurson said the decision of the New South Wales Rugby League in 1987 to allow Brisbane into the team directly led to Super League a few years later. Do you think these comments from 1987 also might have played some part? This was ARL Secretary Bob Abbott. We've never paid our test players. We consider it a privilege for them to play for Australia. We may declare a bonus to players who have toured, but there's never been any suggestion that we've paid players for appearing in a test in this country. We pay them expenses, accommodation, and a weekly allowance, but they don't get paid for playing the game. That's an honour. I mean, God almighty. And yeah, so players were were rightly uh, angry about that situation. I think Gary Jack actually summed it up best. Sure, it's a privilege to play for Australia, but we brought honour to the country and helped make them the best league playing in the country of the world, and they're treating us like this. Well, it's ludicrous, isn't it? Yeah. And I I wanted to talk a bit about the the series as a whole, and and I'll I'll start with Wally Lewis, as, as everything must do. I actually think this is peak Wally Lewis. He was never as as high on the chain as as this year and he never would be again. Maybe 89 in origin, even though his club was I, I'm not I'm not talking about just origin. I'm right. I'm just talking about the King Wally right, factor, right. you know. He was probably already on on the downslide of his career here. I, there was an article that year where Mark Murray came out and said that Wally Lewis has to change his game and maybe he should be playing lock. So there there was already talk that He'd had his best time, but <laughs> the old rugby league trope about moving guys to lock. <laughs> <laughs> but you had this year. You had the book come out. You had the um, the, this this comment from Wayne Bennett. It, it shows like where where the the pecking order was in Queensland football at this time. Uh, this was him talking about being reappointed to the Queensland job for nineteen eighty seven. Once Wally said he didn't want it. I thought I was a pretty good chance. Captain Coach. Yeah, yeah. Fair dinkum. Mm. Uh, and June Lewis, Wally's mum, was happy that the, the crowd were booing him and doing the Wally's a wanker chant again because she was worried the year before they stopped doing it. 
when they were doing it, she knew that he had his aura back. <laughs> and I feel, I feel that the last reason why I think this was like peak Wally is there was a bit of a mistake in the fact that we in New South Wales only got to see him like three times a year. Absolutely. And test. Yeah. And once he came into the Sydney comp, like I, I can't really remember the player he was for Brisbane. All I remember is the pantomime villain. I, I used to watch in State of Origin. Yeah. But like, no one really talks about his Brisbane career as being, like, great, you know? Well, it wasn't great. That's yeah. why I got the ass. Mm. Um, I remember him playing a little bit, but it's just sad that he had to come down at the tail end of the career. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it definitely robbed him a bit of that mistake, and that's definitely, why I think yeah. it, it was never the same. It's just amazing to think it was back in 86, 87 that you had – Queensland was a whole different competition. Yeah, amazing, amazing. This this was of course the the first uh, the first Origin series for a number of players. Uh, one short blonde halfback from Ipswich, Ipswich being among them, and I, I think Sherlock should have been forever stripped of that name for this comment. The only logical reason I can find for Alan Langer's selection for Queensland ahead of Laurie Spina is a simple one. With King Wally outside, all the Maroons wanted was a feeder inside, just like Mark Murray. Get the ball to Wally and take it from there has been Queensland's motto. Laurie Spina has been an explosive individualist. He would have taken too much emphasis off the King. Good Lord. I mean, I love Laurie Spina, <laughs> but, but I think history will show... We're talking about earlier tonight about the toughness of Jeff Tuvey and Preston Campbell. The size of Alfie when he debuted mm. at Origin, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, so small. Mm. Didn't have that lower body strength that he came to have in his second half of his career. Yeah, and he he won them the series. Like New South Wales won the first game. Queensland squared it up. Alan Lang put in a man man of the match performance in game three to give them the series. That double grubber kick. Yeah, eighty seven. I think so. Yeah. Uh, uh, another interesting thing about uh, the New South Wales Origin team this time, Terry Lamb actually uh, decided to step down from representative football and the New South Wales Rugby League threatened to ban him for the duration of the Origin period. Wow. Uh, and he stuck to his guns and said he, he, you know, just family commitments and the rest of it, he just didn't want to play Origin. Uh, in the end, the Bulldogs found a loophole to stop him getting banned after... After um, game one, when New South Wales won, they waited until all the players got through the week and didn't get injured, and then he made himself available knowing that he wouldn't be picked because it was a winning team. Right. So he got to keep playing during the (laughs) The last-minute loophole in rugby league. (laughs) It never fails to get a player out of a suspension or... (laughs) But I mean, I mean, he did play rep footy beyond that. But I, kind of a, a little insight into why maybe his rep numbers weren't that great. If I had to submit a choice for history corner, I would suggest Terry Lamb. Mm. A very interesting career. Yeah, yeah. The whole longevity, not training. Yeah. All the rest of it. Mm. Uh, and you also had not the swan song because he did referee the first game in 1988, but uh, it was all coming to an end for Barry Gamasol. Um, a, a lot of talk in the press about how bad he was, and a lot of that coming from Queensland from the Queensland contingent. Uh, Fatty said that he borders on incompetence as a on, as a ref, incompetent as a referee. He said he wasn't biased; he was just shit. <laughs> what an endorsement! <laughs> um, yeah, and and the rugby league week were out in force saying that it it was a joke that he kept getting picked. 
my favorite story about Barry Gummersoll comes from uh, Ken Arthurston's book where he talks about uh, there was a it must have been a Panasonic Cup, Cup match between Brisbane and Manly and um, Ron McAuliffe, the Queensland boss, selected Barry Gummersoll to ref and Arco said, no, there's no way we're having that. To which Ron McAuliffe said, all right, well, how about this? What about if we give it to Gummersoll and I tell him to ref it fair dinkum? <laughs> That's in the top three ever <laughs> quotes worldwide, let alone rugby league. Good lord! Uh, but yeah, so this <laughs> this this was the year that rugby league went to America, and and I, th- I thought it was very timely to to look into this, given everything that's that's happened over the last year or so. And and you gotta you gotta remember how big a shadow Paul Hogan cast in that era. Yeah, like, you wonder whether Crocodile Dundee made the league go. Well, the, the timing's right. Australia's hot right now. You wonder. I guarantee <laughs> it. And and the league did invite Hogs as well as Greg Norman and Bob Hawke to to come over for the game. I don't think any of them made it. But... <laughs> Um, and the eternal trope with with any effort like this, there was talk that players were going to wear gridiron pants for the game. To which uh, you know rugby league week columnists like Mark Murray and Ray Price were outraged that they they would do that. You know? <laughs> but think about the era that was in where like these were very Aussie blokes mm. before international travel, before globalization. You know, total Aussie ochre blokes. Yeah. They would have been going there, like almost thinking that maybe stars there in their mind. I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, definitely. And I gotta say, I think I think that the way they promoted the game was pretty good. Like they build it as a north versus south contest, giving the Americans something to latch on to, and more importantly, giving me my favourite ever rugby league week cover with uh, um, Paul Vorton and Noel Cleal in Civil War uniforms. Ultimate cover. Yeah. the The big sticking point was getting the game on TV in America. And Not enough channels. Yeah. So for months in the lead up to the game, we were hearing that, you know, like, oh, yeah, they're in deep talks with ESPN. It looks like it could be watched by up to 15 million Americans. So this was a game for um, that was in August. In September of, of 1987, Norm Tasker in the Rugby League Week wrote this. The State of Origin match in Los Angeles last month has finally made it on American TV. The cable network ESPN has agreed to show an hour's edited highlights in November. <laughs> and um, I, I wanted to... So, so feeling about the, the venture was mixed. You know, there, there was a lot of support, but there was also a, a lot of um, questioning as to, is this the time? Is this the priority? Why are we doing this? You're saying there was some negative feedback on it. Yeah. So I, I think Mark Murray uh, outlined the his reservations quite eloquently, saying we got threats from the AFL. Where's the, What's the follow-up? What's the end goal here? What are we going to do? Uh, but I, I don't want to read like an eloquent kind of you know, <laughs> summation of events. I, I want to hear what Ray Price has to say. <laughs> I've heard some arguments for and against this week's State of Origin promotion, but it hasn't changed my mind. The match is a waste of time. Some pockets are going to be filled with money. Uh, just an aside, the league lost $40,000 on it, um, which is a pretty fair effort. Yeah, not bad They really. lost about 600000 this time. At Parramatta's uh, annual meeting, that'd be a <laughs> banner year. Some Yanks will turn up purely through curiosity to watch the game, and then it will be all forgotten. 
Rugby League has to look after its own backyard in Australia before they take off on their half-pied fantasy about getting the game going in the US. Aussie rules, like it or not, has invaded our territory. They've moved into league's strongest cities, Brisbane and Sydney, and have made definite moves to set up a truly national competition. Have we made any inroads into their territory? Are we playing any top-class matches outside our own domain? No, we're going to Disneyland. I think that's quite eloquent. I, I think, like, he's kind of on the he's He's on the money. He was on the money then, and it it kind of makes you think now, like, yeah, it's great we're going to America, but when we can't even get a, a team in Perth, like, yeah, agreed. But um, you should better do both. You yeah, should, you should better have yeah, your backyard. Yeah, door. no, no, it, it definitely shouldn't be an either or scenario. But, <laughs> but so in, in eighty seven, he's predicted the infestation of AFL, mm. the vermin that they are, and then you go down to the Redfern pubs and they're watching Swans at full ball and putting the league on the side TV. Disgusting. But I I, th- I think this this comment from Norm Tasker really um like this this could have been written last week. The match has had plenty of knockers, but there's a lot to be said for the old adage: nothing ventured, nothing gained. It's a shame the clubs couldn't share the spirit of adventure embodied in the game. Asking players to rush back virtually as soon as they've showered so they can play a weekend game here is crass. <laughs> but I mean, I've got to agree with Price. Where is the follow up? Yeah, do it yearly. Yeah, like do it. Several times. Don't just do it once every three yeah, decades. Exactly. You know, and the official crowd was twelve thousand. Jack Gibson put it at five. Paul Voughton, who played in the match, <laughs> said it was more like eight to ten. But I mean, regardless, like that's not a terrible result. You Still know? bigger than Manly. And and why did it just fall away? And there was just nothing more heard about it for thirty years. I've got to say, Long Beach is a venue. What, yeah. What, what's the? Well, I guess it had to be a West Coast thing. Well, it's a rough as guts joint apparently on the Californian coast. It's like it doesn't seem to be like a rugby league heartland mm, to yeah. me. <laughs> Is that where Snoop Dogg's from? Yeah, yeah. Uh, South Sydney's our number one ticket. It would have been. Snoop it would have made a great second rower. <laughs> Cartwright esque. John, that is. <laughs> uh, now, now I, I want to turn to uh, the the broadcasting landscape, and I, I've said it before. Uh, my three all time favorite books. Wuthering Heights, The Grapes of Wrath, and Rex Mossop's The Moose That Roared. Uh, and this was a, a massive year for Rex. Uh, a- apologies that there's some repeated content from our uh, one of our earliest history corners on Rex Mossop, but I think we had about a dozen listeners then. Uh, get that on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A- and more importantly, track down a copy of The Moose That Roared. Best book ever. It's the greatest book of all time. So this was his return to uh, TV after a few years in the wilderness when Channel 7 lost the rights after the 82 season, I believe. So the, the broadcasting landscape was in a, a state of flux in 1987. Before I get to TV, I'll just briefly touch on the radio climate. You had Hollywood and Zorba, the undisputed kings of rugby league radio. This was the year that a 32-year-old former auctioneer from Dundas made his debut as, as the head of 2UE's uh, radio call ray hadley um cementing his spot there and and I, that during the year they they ran a they ran a story in the rugby league week looking at at the radio teams and went to um sat in with ray hadley and ray hadley said this to say about the fact that he was only on air during the games he wasn't involved in the pre-game stuff i just think people can hear too much of the one voice I'm at it non-stop for 80 minutes, and then I do the wind-up after the game for half an hour or so, and that's probably enough of me. <laughs> I want to know when and why that changed. <laughs> yeah, I'll just work seven days a week for 12 hours a day from now on. 
I've got to say, like, as much as, like, I, I Ray Hadley, all accounts, prick of a bloke, terrible TV caller, can't stand him. I think if he became a TV caller in, you know, in 84 or 85, we'd be talking about him as, like, one of the greats. Yeah, the only issue with why his TV calling is bad now is it sounds like radio yeah, or Greyhound yeah, calling. Yeah, I think he just was in that world for too long to actually be able to pull it off on TV. He's actually quite a fine radio caller. He's, he's great. Like yeah. I, I think he's he's a really good football caller on radio. If, if, give me a bit of nostalgia now for the radio, the round the ground, yeah, whatever. I used to listen yeah. at my nan's house. It, it is funny because it's the it's the ultimate like rose coloured syndrome. Though, yeah, like, around the ground, Synovus vitamins, you know, like <laughs> all that sort of stuff. Like you know, listening yeah. to the radio and getting the six games scores but like that's a terrible system but you, you look back so fondly <laughs> no one thought to sell the rest of the games <laughs> for rights get some money in the game so on tv you had three networks sharing the games you had channel 10 doing the the sunday night replay you had the abc game on a saturday arvo and you had uh, channel 9 doing origin with uh, daryl eastlake think of how Little TV rugby league you had, yeah. Like it's crazy when you think back, yeah. How and, we how we didn't follow the game, I know. Do and do you remember how terrible those Sunday like those Sunday games were? Like the way they were chopped up into like you know an hour, like. Well, that was in the Super League War, but even before that, but the, didn't they have it at ninety minutes? Oh yeah, it was ninety minutes, but yeah. still, it it was it was not the full game. The worst was the Super League, the one hour yeah, yeah. Sunday. I know. That made yeah. me want to vomit. Actually, I think worse than that is the Friday night game being not put on live because of Burke's backyard. It <laughs> was a big show at the time. <laughs> Speaking of big shows at the time, do you know that uh, the, the Sunday night big game was actually third in the ratings for much of 1987? It's a knockout? Uh, no. <laughs> so 60 Minutes was first, and uh, um, a friendly alien from Marmac... Uh, in second spot, uh, Alf, of course. <laughs> I had the Alf doll. Um, oh, we all had the Alf doll. Um, I, I love, I love the complaining of rugby league people. Like, I, I think this is the most rugby league uh, quote of all time. This is complaining about the 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 six thirty time slot, saying it's you know that's family time. This was um, this was Clive Galea. Some of the boys are having trouble convincing wives that rugby league should dominate on television at 6.30 every Sunday night. That's surely's family viewing time. At 7.30, Alf and 60 Minutes take over, causing the dedicated fan to retreat to the second set or even surrender altogether. <laughs> Mate, I mean, I love my footy, but Alf, come on. <laughs> I mean... You, you always say that rugby league fans can uh, have any excuse to avoid going to a live game. <laughs> You've got Alf keeping you out of the TV games as well. Is that is that an early precursor to the pussy whipped husband? <laughs> but I, I love Rex's obliviousness to all of this. This is how he thought the 1987 ratings war went. From our four, first broadcast of 1987, which went to where at 6.30, we wiped the floor with the best programs the opposition channels could pit against us. Uh, but yeah, so of of course he replaced Ray Warren that year. Ray Warren had, had commented for Channel Ten in the years leading up to that. He says that one of the reasons that he thinks he lost his job was he was scared of flying and refused to go to the nineteen eighty four Olympic Games where he was supposed to anchor their coverage, and he said that that put that put him offside with management from thereafter. 
It's fair enough. In his book, he said that Jack Gibson told him in the early days of his commentating that your biggest problem is you try to be friends with everyone and you can't. Jack was saying that my fence sitting came over in my commentary, that it was too sanitized. In other words, I didn't bag anybody because I didn't want any rough water. Very good advice. Because I was, I got his book hoping to see some Rex bagging, but he basically didn't say anything. All right. Disappointing. Rex, not so hesitant. <laughs> he said this, The sportscaster I'd be replacing at 10, Ray Warren, was bitter about his axing. We'd always been friendly to each other, and I made it clear there was nothing personal in my taking his job. Channel 10 management had approached me after all. They thought I'd rate better than Ray. It was as simple as that. 10's move was purely a business decision, and I was disappointed by Ray's attitude. I felt no guilt at all at taking his position. We're all big boys, and TV's a tough business. (laughs) Imagine if the shoe was on the other foot. Yeah, I know. We tried to hit him. So Rex was under the, un, of the understanding when he signed his contract that he'd be alone in the booth because that's how he liked to operate. He thought that other people just got in the way and stepped on his call. But <laughs> solo call. Yeah. Uh, he he used to, when he was at in the last days of Channel Seven. He had Bill Anderson next to him, and he said, "I didn't mind Bill Anderson piping up, you know, at halftime, but during the game, it, it was my show." <laughs> and, <laughs> So he, he was on the, of the understanding that that was going to happen, but 10 said, no, Graham Hughes is going to be in the box with you, and you know that's, that's just kind of how it is. And that almost instantly set up an adversarial relationship between the two of them. Poor Graham Hughes. <laughs> and it was, pretty much in every rugby league week during the season in 1987, there was at least a small column talking about the, the feud between... Uh, Rex Mossop and Graham Hughes, which was like filtering its way on air. <laughs> I'll just read this one. Those of you who thought Channel 10's mismatch duo of Rex Mossop and Graham Hughes were light-hearted in their many digs at each other should think again. What a lively start to the Panasonic Cup. The Moose, One-Eyed Eagle, came across to us as pretty fair Denkin when he got stuck into ex-Bulldog Hughes. Such things as Graham Hugh, Graham who? How nice of you to say so, considering your eyes are blue and white. I should have known better than to ask you. I'm learning, buddy. Were they really as good natured as they seemed? Hughes and Mossop are of, dif- are of different eras and are on different wavelengths. We'll watch their progress with interest. For his own part, Graham Hughes, in his book, um, commented on the situation and said, In Rex's heyday, he created atmosphere, he was accurate, he knew all the inside information and the terminology and the strategies. But by the end of Channel 7's tenure, Rex was nearing the end of his career. He had begun making on-air on-air errors. When he joined us at 10, Rex and I disagreed from the start. I stood up to Rex and contradicted him when I I thought he was wrong. He did not enjoy this. Saying that they're from different eras is an understatement. Like yeah. he, he's from the Rum Rebellion, <laughs> and then Graham Hughes was from the eighties. And it, it was clear that it wasn't a cultural fit with with Rex on at Channel Ten. And and Rex said there was never any love lost between me and Ten Management, who I thought went out of their way to keep their distance. Perhaps they found me a bit difficult. <laughs> I believe my broadcasts were hurt by too many long ad breaks, and I said so. And I caught flack from the powers that be when viewers saw me throw my papers in the air in anger after learning I may have to be in Seoul for the Olympics at the same time as the 88 League final series. That's the best ever. I'll say it again. Why was he informed that on air? <laughs> but also, also this, this, this was... <laughs> This was earlier in in Rex's book. 
10 Chief George Brown put a solid proposal to me. I'd be sole commentator of the Premiership match of the day on Sunday night. And if 10 won the rights to televise the 1988 Olympic Games, I would be the host. Oh, my God. This is why this book is the best book ever. Like, he's just got no self-awareness at all. I can't say this enough to the listeners. Go to the YouTube and listen to Michael's early, early history calling on Rex Mossop and his book because it's just so entertaining. And, and it sounds like we're bagging Rex here, but like I, I legitimately love Rex Mossop. Well, but that, that quote there is why he's beloved because he's angry because he, he, he's going to, what other people would call a chance of a lifetime to go to the Olympics and broadcast yep. and he's going to miss the league yeah. final. <laughs> he's angry. And um, he was copying it from all sides in 1987. Like the the consensus was that he lost it as a broadcaster. The Herald seemed to bag him regularly anyway. He he hated Fairfax, but regularly in rugby league week, every week there'd be an article talking about his latest stuff up or saying that you know comments about his future at, at ten. You can't be an aggressive, blustery type and make juvenile errors. No, it shines a light on them. Yeah. If you like that. Mm. So he has to cop it. Yeah. And and this, this is his way of dealing with that criticism. Critics have attacked me all my life for holding simplistic black and white views, but that's the way it is. Chop a man's head off or don't chop it off, but never leave the poor bastard languishing in irons. I'll give a subject plenty of thought before reaching an opinion on it, but once I've made up my mind, that's it. I won't vacillate. I won't be swayed by contrary opinions. I don't believe in compromise. I believe in what I consider is right. It's a simple philosophy, but it's the Mossop way. <laughs> um, and I, I want next time we speak to Ian Heads, I want to ask him about this because he was still editor of Rugby League Week um, at this time, and he got a few digs in over the course of that year as well as Rex. And I, like th- this, this is what Rex says about people who criticise him. When people turn on me, I don't forget. It hurts me when, I've, when those I've considered to be friends kick me in the teeth, and there's no shortage of people guilty of that, many of them very high-profile people in sport, radio, newspapers, and TV. So although I'll never lower myself to get involved in a public slinging match with them, there are quite a few people whose actions have ensured that they will have an enemy in me for the rest of their days. <laughs> God. I would hate to be an enemy of Rick <laughs> no. But this is... So 1987 was the year that he suffered a stroke on air and no one knew that at the time and you know everyone was saying like oh he's really lost it now like incoherent didn't know what he was talking about i don't know what's happened and the reason it didn't come out that he had a stroke was because he didn't let it come out and this went back to his playing days of he didn't want to show any sign of weakness think about the toughness of that yeah he said i could have called off the dogs by admitting i had suffered a stroke but as, as Dad said, never let the bastards know you're hurt. So I didn't. All my football career, I'd play down injury, never letting on when I was hurt. Just as the St. George forwards hit me all the harder once they knew that, my present adversaries, those, distract, those detractors in the media who delighted in highlighting the tiniest mistakes in my commentary, would have really gone to town on me if they felt I was off my game. So I decided not to give them any ammunition. I think the Mossop way has got some fundamental flaws, <laughs> like treating everybody that's not you as a bastard, yeah, for example. <laughs> like, <laughs> and having, like being so like immersed in this like Walt mentality that you think letting people know that you had a stroke is giving them ammunition. <laughs> 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 like I think Graham Hughes probably would have even sent him a sympathy card if he didn't yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so he was... All, all the rumors about him being 
him being removed from commentary were true and he was stripped of his uh, play-by-play role at the end of that season and went to just kind of like hosting the coverage, which is how I remember him as a kid. Yeah. Very kind of bitter about the the way that ended. But again, I I just love him so much. This was him talking about when he was replaced as the the sports reader on the, the Channel 10 Eyewitness News. A month or so later, after the 1988 Olympics, I was replaced as reader of the Sports Report by Ian Morris. I was told at the time that my rough-hewn, upfront style was putting a lot of younger viewers off. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I love the idea of Rex Moss reading the news. <laughs> I mean, it intimidated me as a, like, as a footy fan. Like, if, you, if you're just like sw- switching to channels and see this like 70-year-old aggressive hard man. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so that that was the the TV landscape in 1987. It's just another planet, isn't it? Yeah, um, so crazy. I, I, I neglected to mention Walker the Emu. That was his other bigger uh, uh, fight with Ten Management. They they introduced a, a sideline stuffed emu to the coverage, which he <laughs> uh, didn't think was befitting of of the game. I agree with Rex. <laughs> I also do. Um, I, I said I had some more Sterlow talk uh, in this history corner, but I, I think I might save that for next week. So we'll we'll end it there. And uh, yeah, stay tuned next week. We're going to look at what happened to the previous season's premiers and look ahead at how Manly and Canberra got to the grand final. Very entertaining, mate. Uh, now we're going to look at the teams involved in, in the comp. And before we get to the teams who ended up in the grand final, Manly and Canberra, just spend a bit of time talking about the previous year's grand finalists. Now, when we get to 1988, you cannot tell the story of the Canterbury in 1988 without talking about their 1987. They had a crazy year in 1987. So we're going to hold off on that. But let's just talk a bit about Para for a sec. So both Canterbury and Para missed the, the finals in 1987. Uh, at that point, that was the fourth time in history that the previous year's grand finals had both both missed the semifinals. It's a topsy-turvy year. Mm. Uh, it's, it's happened three times since then, once in the 90s and twice in the aughts. I want you to have a, have a guess, a bit, bit of a quiz. Para Newcastle? No. Oh. Warriors. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so uh, Penrith and Canberra in 92. Oh, yeah, out. of that course. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, what happened with Penrith, but then Canberra. What happened with Canberra that year? Canberra had salary cap and injuries. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and then 2005, Canterbury and the Roosters both missing the semis. And then the very next year, the Tigers and the Cowboys. Oh, of course, yeah. Mm. So if you jetted back to 1987 and told, told rugby league fans at that time, like, 
oh, Parramatta aren't going to make the semis this year, they'd be like, what? You're crazy. If you said, oh, and by the way, they're not going to get back to the semis for a decade or so and they won't win another comp again. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So they started that year as five to two favourites. But they'd lost Cronin and Price. They lost Cronin and Price. Um, but everyone just, I mean, we're, we're going to talk a bit about what those blokes offered. But, I mean, realistically, it's like a couple of players in their 30s on, you know, that yeah. had had their best days. They still had the best player in the world in Peter Sterling. They still had Brett Kenny and they still had s- seemingly a, a good squad. Yeah. Um, earlier in the early in the season, uh, Canterbury beat Parramatta quite easily. And Steve Mortimer, who was writing Rugby League Week that year, said, Parramatta is still going to be contenders and semi-finalists in 1987. That's the long view. And that was the kind of climate at the time. It was like, oh, yeah, you know, they're having troubles at the moment, but they're Parramatta. They'll come good. You know? And in an early warning sign, they got belted by Balmain. So Parramatta kind of came good eventually, but had left their run too late. They played like one of the games of the year against Manly late in the season that Manly won a real epic game, but the damage was done. They ended up in seventh place. So let's just talk about a couple of those reasons they mightn't have made the, the finals. And Cronin and Price seem to have, have played a major part in, part in it, like just everything they offered off the field. Um, again, I'm going to quote Steve, Steve Mortimer, who said that, um, you know, Cronin hadn't played that much over the, the last couple of seasons with injury, but was still a big presence. He said, Price, though, was the big one. He was a bastard to play against. You can never relax for a second. If you did, he pinched 20 yards off you. He was a mongreler, a controlled, aggressive player who would hunt the ball and take his forwards with him. Have you ever heard anyone describe him with anything other than, like, begrudging reverence? Yeah. Like, yeah. he's just an amazing player. Mm. And that was a lot of talk that people, that other Parramatta players didn't seem to care about losing as much as, as he did once he was gone, you know? I'm comparing to, like, Draymond Green for the Golden State Warriors. You, you just need that, that 1% of the mongrel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Cronin and Price had very different years in in retirement. Price uh, was uh, out out and proud in the media. He he was on a, I can't remember if it was two UE or two GB that year. Uh, I think it was two UE. It was two UE. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I love I love and he was also writing for Rugby League Week <laughs> as well. I I love his columns in Rugby League Week so much. <laughs> right. um, I'll give you an example. How dare Manly rant and rave over referees? Have they forgotten the times when they savagely ridiculed Parramatta every time we complained back in the late 70s, particularly about a man called Greg Hartley? Have they forgotten how our big feud began in 1978? Because I certainly haven't. (laughs) (laughs) And he made a... On on one radio broadcast when um, Canterbury were playing Parramatta, he said that uh, Canterbury liked Mick Stone as a referee, but Parramatta liked Kevin Roberts. Who got the game? Mick Stone. There's a conspiracy against <laughs> But this was the be- this was the ultimate what if that I, I really wish that happened. Um, friend of the show, Kevin Ryan, who had by that stage left the Labor Party to start his own uh, breakaway political party, tried to recruit Ray Price to <laughs> to the party. That would be the hardest <laughs> political party in history. Uh, Mick Cronin, on the other hand, um, went went straight back to Jerangong, of course. Uh, coach the... and did what? <laughs> well, in, in addition to his uh, his publican venture, he also coached the the Jerangong Lions that year and took them to their first grand final since he played there in 1972. Wow! Yeah, I, I actually I forgot to track it down whether they won or not. So <laughs> that's as much as I can tell you. <laughs> uh, and so a, a lot of the the talk about why Paramount had fallen off so badly was about their failure to recruit some of the players they they had 
weren't up to standard. One player that was up to standard was Bob Lidner, who uh, played his first year at Parramatta that I year. I love Bob Lidner. Um, so when Ray Price retired from rap footy in 1984, he made a big show of handing over his jersey to Wayne Pierce, And it was like, you know, this is, this is the, the next guy in line. But by 1987... Bob Lindner was, you know, had pushed Wayne Pierce out to the second row and was widely regarded as the best lock in the game. Yeah, he was great. Um, failed to he he had mixed form in his two years at Para and ended up uh, leaving due to the the age old homesickness because <laughs> his girlfriend wanted to go back to Queensland. <laughs> so he he signed. This is what I, I don't understand. He signed with the Gold Coast. Like surely the Broncos would have had some interest in Bob Lindner pre salary cap. Yeah. Thoroughbreds, yeah. money, yeah. crazy. doesn't make any sense to me. I, I wonder if there was something between him and Bennett. Yeah, possibly. But So he went to the Gold Coast, only lasted a year, then came back to Sydney, so I think his, his wife got over it. But went to West, went to Illawarra. I mean, there were a couple of good years at West, but it's kind of a shame that his club career was... Well, he, he had a strong rep career into, into the 90s. Mm. He's a part of that, uh, my favourite ever back row of Clyde, Lidner and Fittler. Mm-hmm. But uh, his club career didn't wasn't as big as the Parramatta days. Yeah, and even then, like it, it was a couple of years of of mixed form. You know, it's yeah. I always like growing up. Like I, I never quite got it. Like Bradley Clyde, I got. Like it was so much easier to understand why he was like a great player. Clyde was great in '89, but he was hurt from the, from there on out. <laughs> yeah, you know, so like yeah. he's always playing on one leg or mm. coming back from injury. So it's kind of like we, I didn't really see the best best of him. Mm. As I was sort of you know, a young kid still. Yeah, and, and one one theory I had before I started looking into this was like John Money was he just not a very good coach? I always thought like you know he inherited this champion Parramatta team. He like. Fell on his ass into this all-time great Wigan team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I only really remember him at the Warriors, really. You know. Yeah, don't crucify guy with <laughs> no, the Warriors. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not. But I'm, I, like that was my theory. I'm like, oh, maybe John Money just wasn't very good. But hearing Sterlo, like Sterlo had the utmost respect for him. And you know what Sterlo is saying is yeah. legit. So Sterlo said. Um, he said, the 1986 win justified and supported the coaching ability of John Money. Money's team had won the two major competitions in the year. That was perfection. We went so close in 84, then reasonably close in 85. Now we were there. Money's reputation zoomed from being a good coach to being a premiership winning coach, and we were all delighted for him. That's nice. Mm. And then the other big talking point with Parramatta was the regression of Kenny and, in the early part of the season, Peter Sterling. So we, we mentioned last uh, in the first part of this history corner that Sterling went on to have, you know, one of the best seasons ever, won every award possible. And it wasn't that he was playing badly at first. It was just that the, I guess, the pressure of having an underperforming team around him was starting to sh- show some cracks. And then there was even talk of uh, him being replaced in New South Wales by Des Hasler. That had more to do with Hasler's good form than, than any bad form of Peter Sterling. And by the end of the year, he'd certainly, you know, stamped his authority on the competition. One thing that he didn't really have was the you know, 30 origin career, Stello. He, mm. he had the Mortimer years, you know, he had like 14 origins or something, yeah, like yeah. 12 yeah. origins or something. And and that's the other crazy thing about this, you know. So Brett Kenny played his last t- test against New Zealand mid-year and had the worst game of his rep career. Never, he got injured in 88, retired from rep footy, he never played rep footy again. Sterling played in 88, and then he was done with rep footy. In the veneer, yeah. Mm. And uh, of his the, the back end of his career, Kenny said, 
In the latter years of my career, I had happily devoted myself in total to Parramatta. There were no rep duties, no diversions or distractions, just the club that had given me my chance. For five active seasons and one inactive one while I was injured, I was a club player and nothing else. The disappointment was that during my, that time, my club did not once make the semi-finals and twice almost won the wooden spoon with me as captain. Sad ending. Yeah, yeah. But that's what happens. You have you have championship teams and they, I don't know, you have to go through the rebuild most mm. times. Yeah. Well, that that was one of the most perceptive things about um, in, in the after, when the season was done and, you know, the post-mortems were being done. A lot of people were like the, you know, Sherlock in Rugby League Week said, unless I'm a really bad judge, it's a very temporary arrangement. Para are one of the tr- true giants of the modern game and they'll be back contenders again in 1988. <laughs> and, and that was a lot of the talk. But then Greg Hartley, who... You know, to be fair, had his own biases and agenda, <laughs> I'm sure. But writing in the Sydney Morning Herald, he said, Parramatta are 10 years away from another premiership and will slip even further down the Winfield Cup ladder next season. It takes a, de- a decade for a club to get over a golden era. Yeah, it's very positive. Mm. Can I just muse on Greg Hartley for a second? Yeah. How bad must have this bloke been that 30 years later, he's still a household name? <laughs> <laughs> and New South Wales Rugby League referee has got that much notoriety. It's insane. But do you think it was the Hollywood absorber more than his referee? Probably, yeah. That has kept him. We're still talking about Darcy Lawler, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a massive notoriety. And is it funny that you never still talk about good referees? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Eddie Ward, I mean. <laughs> I didn't realise Eddie Ward like had been refing since the, the late 70s in, in the BRL. Wow. Yeah. Look good in a um, pastel orange TNT <laughs> ref shirt. Which, I mean... They never should have gone away from that. Oh, I, I know rose coloured and all, but like, has any referee's uniform ever come close to matching the, never. the TNT era? You know who loved the red TNT? Greg McCallum. <laughs> I, I hate the ones they've got at the moment. Yeah, no the good. Yellow and purple. Yeah. Mm. Uh, anyway, we'll move on to the teams who did make the grand final. And Canberra, we'll start with Canberra. So that their sixth year in the comp, they narrowly beat Campbelltown and Newcastle to get the license in '81. What's funny about this squad, though, mate, is it's a really, really good team, but because it's not the 89, 90, 91 super team, it gets overlooked. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Mm. It's a star-studded team. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, you you still had some links to the, the foundation years with, you know, Chris O'Sullivan, um, Jay Hoffman, and Craig Bellamy, another foundation player. He, you know, didn't play many first-grade games that year. So still there with the shoulder pads. Yeah. So you still had a few of the the stalwarts, and then you had this injection of of the Queensland talent. You had Mal with the arm guard, which uh, we're going to get to the arm guard <laughs> later in the story. And then you had Dean Lance, who'd been at the club since Newtown folded. Is my first hitman that I was aware of. Yeah, and that was his reputation, like considered you know the hardest or one of the hardest players to tackle in the comp. All right, he was he wasn't even the big, a big player. In his day, yeah, right. His playing weight, yeah. eighty three kilos. <laughs> Steve Folks esque. It's it's insanity to think of that. I mean, I know players were small then, but like eighty three kilos, like well, he's twenty four kilos lighter than me right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's no good. And that backline. So you had you had basically an all international or an all rep at the very least backline. You had Gary Belcher in his second year at the club. Terry Fay and John Ferguson on the wings, who both played for Australia. Uh, Mal Menenga and Peter Jackson in the centre. That was a killer backline. Mm. And the halves were no slashes either. Yeah. So and so, even though they were rank outsiders at the start of the year, they started sixteen to one to to win the comp. 
there was still a bit of belief that they could do something. They'd finished 11th the year before, but you could only look at that squad and see the, the class. So Ray Price, among many, many things he got wrong that year, he said, the Canberra Raiders, the most undisciplined team in the Winfield Cup in the past two seasons, are my pick to be the Bolters of 1987. And I'm not talking about just a semi-final spot. I'm willing to stick my head out at this early stage and say they could end up in the top three and go all the way to the grand final. Nostradamus. They, they did both of those things. And then the other in, well, the, the other interesting thing about it was the, the coaching situation with Wayne Bennett coming in. And Don Ferner, their inaugural coach, was a driving force behind that. He wanted someone to come in and take over and it's still weird to me co-coaching yeah it must have been mostly Bennett surely yeah well I'll, I'll break it down that dynamic a, a bit in detail but I don't I don't think there are many many people who could have made that work it took a like kind of a a genial uh you know old salt kind of personality like Don Don Ferner legendary figure at Canberra and, and the game yeah and a, a person like a character like Wayne Bennett who is ambitious, driven, but had an immense respect for old football men. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he said that for talent identification, Don Ferner, Cyril Connell, and Bob Fulton were the best he'd ever known. Imagine how fast Wayne Bennett was in the 5K <laughs> in 87. <laughs> so there was a feeling around Canberra that as my favorite analogy of Don Ferner was that he was like the old country GP that had just been around for a bit too long and had lost a bit of the magic. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of cruel to say about a bloke who'd you know gone on kangaroo tours had you know had plenty of success as a player and a coach but he was always kind of like the guy before the guy you know he coached east before jack gibson in the 70s and then you yeah know, right, right. it happened again at canberra but look at the team that he spent six years building up you know well he's not disrespected at canberra no he's a yeah, king yeah and so in practice it it was a bit of it was more wayne bennett running training and Don Ferner kind of being the kind of overseer. Wayne Bennett would do the pre-match speeches and all that sort of thing. Early coaching director. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Gary Belcher said that during training sessions, Don Ferner generally took the forwards and Wayne Bennett the backs. So they had that little dynamic as well. But that's, I mean, they're still rugby league guys and it, it would be wrong to say there was no ego and no friction at all. <laughs> and this was magnified when, uh, when the, the coach of the year ballot was put out. Wayne Bennett was was up for the award, but Don Ferner wasn't. Well, why? I, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. But yeah, so Don Ferner was quite angry about that. Well, it's not really Wayne Bennett's fault. Yeah. Oh no, he wasn't angry at <laughs> Bennett, just angry at the situation. But that that caused like him to kind of try to reassert his authority in the media. God you know, like, um, just just like you know, kind of like little things like when they were talking about whether Nalmaninga would make his return from injury, Don Ferner said. It comes down to what I say in the finish, you know, so just, just little comments like that sprinkled yeah, right. throughout the year. Let me ask you, do you think the Wayne Bennett appointment was Mal related? He coached Mal before in Brisbane. Uh, it couldn't have hurt. Yeah, sure. no, it definitely definitely didn't hurt. I, th I think, yeah, there's there's definitely something to that. But Or, or has Mal had a word in their ear down there and said, you've got to get this guy, he's mm. the best. There were, the, I guess Bennett had made himself available because when he took the Queensland job, the QRL said that he couldn't coach at club level anymore. Right. And he wanted to coach at club level. Clubland. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think once he became available, he was the kind of, you know, the hot young coach on the market. Having Mal at Canberra already was probably an enticing factor for him. Mm. And I'm sure that Canberra kind of jumped on that. I mean, Masters tried to get him in. Mm. 
we, we talked about him signing with the Broncos and all the drama behind that when we did our Brisbane history corner. So I don't want to spend too much time on that. But at at first, Les McIntyre was of the opinion that he'd be fired on the spot, and that's looked like how it was going to play out mid year. But eventually, cooler heads prevailed, and he got to stay on. I just don't think they could have won it without him. Yeah. As good as you know, Club Man Ferner is and everything. Mm. I just don't know. Yeah. Just having that Wayne Bennett mm. touch of class. Yeah. And Mal Meninga was also off contract that year. So there was a lot of speculation about where he would end up. And once the, the you know, Brisbane thing started to happen, that it was almost viewed as an inevitability that he'd go up there. Can you imagine how different rugby league would be yeah. if that signing had happened? I know. I doubt 89 would have happened. Yeah. Mm. And then dominoes from there. Yeah. Um, the other the other place he could have ended up was St. Helens, who offered him like way more money than he was going to get in Australia. And so he was seriously considering leaving Australian football and, and going to England. Um, he had had this quote about where he'd end up. I'll go where the money is. I think the time's arrived where I have to look after myself and my family. And with only a few years left in the game, the money must be very important. What, what really struck me when I read that was with only a few years left in the game, like... And this, I, th- I think, really, when you talk about his case for immortality, just think about this. By 1987, by the end of 1987, he played 18 tests, gone on two kangaroo tours, 16 origins, played five grand finals in the BRL and New South Wales Rugby League, won two comps at Brisbane South. Like, those are, like, strong Hall of Fame numbers at that point. Yeah. And think about, like, all that was to come after Well, when that. he retired at 34, wasn't it? Mm. So he was probably thinking, I'll make a 31. Yeah. 30, 31. Mm. And he just somehow made it to 94 yeah. and finished on top. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love like those little like moments of time, you know. Yeah, yeah. Re- reading that reminded me of seeing a picture of Norm Proven on the cover of the Rugby League News uh, at the end of 1954. He'd won their, their Player of the Year clock, as the award was in those days. <laughs> <laughs> and just, just looking at this image of this like, you know, young, clean-cut like beanpole just standing there smiling. I, and I just remember seeing that photo and just thinking like, wow, like... All of this is just ahead of you, and you've got no idea. Yeah, amazing. You know? Well, the, I mean, the male career is just incredible. Mm. He, he must have surprised himself at how well it, it ended up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, um, the old rugby league adage, the trope of looking after the family. I mean, Doc should get rugby league players in there to teach the parents that are not treating the kids right, because <laughs> rugby league players look after their family contract time every single time. <laughs> but then, how often do they say they're going to do that and take a lesser offer to stay at their club? <laughs> Yes, yeah, so anyone staying at a club for unders to win a comp is is hurting their family, basically. <laughs> uh, so, so 1987 was a, a big year for Mal in more ways than one because it was the the origin of his broken arm, which um, basically followed him throughout his career with these five inch fiberglass casts <laughs> that would have been banned in a WWF match <laughs> in '87. It's like a foreign object city in there. <laughs> so, funnily enough, the initial injury happened in a in a um, game against Manly earlier in the year where he uh, hit it against the goalpost. Did he like break it that three times? Yeah, so he, he broke it then. In his first game back, which was in the, in the late rounds of the competition, his first game back, he broke it again and was basically ruled out for the year. Like, it was it was, it was was viewed that that was it for Mal Meninga that year. So he played no rep footy in 87. That's the other crazy thing about the Canberra run then. They did it without Mal Meninga. John Ferguson and Terry Fay both were out for the year with injuries as well. But they still had like uh, class all through there. Belcher and Jackson were in red-hot form. Yeah. And that was the the 
um, other thing about Mal's injury, it gave Peter Jackson his um, his rise in rep footy. Um, he was killing it for Canberra all year. Did the same for Queensland. Um, to for which Mal Meninga was was thrilled about. He said, "I've always said Jacko will go a long way. I'm glad it was Peter they chose to replace me. I played alongside him for Brisbane South, and so now we're together at Canberra. I've always appreciated his style of play." Uh, and and later in his book, he talked about, and Peter Jackson was still with us when this book came out. You could tell how much Mal like, loved Peter Jackson. Everyone in the game loved him. Yeah, and so, same with uh with Wayne Bennett. Um, and I, I, this this is really interesting. I think this this quote about Bennett taking Peter Jackson to Brisbane in 1989. We got Peter Jackson back to Brisbane because I felt we had an issue. We hadn't lifted our level of training sufficiently and the older players in the group were holding the young guys back. I felt that when the young guys tried to step up and lead a bit, the old guys would get together as a group and intimidate them and hold them back. I'd seen this happen a couple of places during my career and it had a detrimental effect on the culture of a place. I needed someone to break the clique developing at the Broncos and that someone was Jacko. A guy that could be between two groups, mm. partying with the young guys and respectable the oldies. Yeah. Do you think that was a direct uh, point at one W. Lewis? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so Peter Jackson, like a key reason behind Canberra making it to the grand final that year. Yeah, I, I was too young to see his prime. I saw him at his late prime pretty much, but mm. uh, when he was in 5 8th Norse and that sort of thing. But yeah, apparently as a centre, he was a swashbuckler, mm. and- robust. And how's his bad luck as well? Leaves Canberra at the end of '88, leaves Brisbane at the end of '91. Yeah, I know. Yeah, shocker. <laughs> and the other, the other um, thing about the Canberra squad was the young players coming through. Two in particular making their debuts that year: Laurie Daly and Kevin Kevin Walters. Uh, I'll, I'll read this after Daly's first game. Canberra have unearthed a 17-year-old capable of taking the league world by storm. Laurie Daly who follows in the footsteps of Phil Blake and Andrew Weddinghausen as 17-year-olds to shine in first grade, caught the eye of Canberra and Australian coach Don Ferner when he was 14. Providing he keeps his head, Daly is sure to be an integral part of Canberra's bid for their first ever semi-final berth. Daly has made a real mark at Canberra in recent weeks, and last Sunday, in his first full top-grade game, he scored a brace of tries against West. No one kept their head more than Laurie Daly. Mm. Perfect career. Yeah. There's, there's been several guys over the years that you just knew from day dot they're going to be superstars. Daly, Fittler... And the modern one, very reminiscent of, of the hype around these two, Latrell Mitchell. You mm. heard it since he was in Harold Matthews. <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin Walters actually played. He he played in the grand final. He he was a key uh, key player all throughout um, the, their run because he was a center replacement for Malman Anger when he went down. Amazing. So he going into the the semi final against East, he was fully expecting to start before the the late game decision to start Mal. So he kind of lost lost his starting spot when Mal came back into the side. And uh, one one of the funny things about footy in those days, like you know, when you when they used to show the coaches uh, on the you know the top top row of the the members <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. stand at, at the SCG. So like grand final day, um, Don Ferner and Wayne Bennett are sitting there. In between them is Kevin Walters in full like kit, <laughs> like waiting to go on. Like. <laughs> It's it's a, such a different era, the replacement era to the interchange era. Mm, you know, yeah. once you're on, you're on. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, mm. two replacements. And- yeah. <laughs> mm. And uh, there was a, a bit of rah-rah talk. There was speculation that uh, Ricky Stewart would be coming to the club in 88, which he initially like signed a contract with Rugby Union. And, and so that was going to be 
ruled out. So I don't know how that got turned around. One of the uh, one of the early blunders from the ALU. <laughs> it's just it actually amazes me that my favorite all time player was Arara. Mm, yeah, um, I wonder how you think this Rara would have gone because David Campesi had an open invitation to join the Raiders anytime he wanted it, um, but he he ruled out the prospect in '87. Well, better judges than me reckons that he would have made it, but and then Jack Gibson's favorite famous quote: "He can't tackle. It's all, I'll get someone else to tackle for him. Yeah. He can score tries." I don't know. Mm. I just don't. Surely he had to. He was the best player in New Yeah, yeah, yeah. O'Connor made it. Mm. Uh, on, on the tackling issue, I'll, I'll go to one of my favorite quotes from Duncan Thompson, who uh, was talking about halfback play. And he said, I only tackled when absolutely necessary. And even then, I I would ask why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Cameron went on a, a great run late in the year. Uh, they um, beat. They they were in the hunt, but everyone thought that they might fade again because they had Canterbury, Easts, and Souths in their last three matches. South and East both making the finals and Canterbury being Canterbury. They won all three of those games, uh, two of them very convincingly to show they were, to, sh- you know, show their real deal credentials. <laughs> one, one, of the, uh, one of the changes in that season from previous seasons was winning seven from 11 away games. And I wonder if that, holds true for other teams notoriously bad away whether in those years where they make finals you know i'm thinking of the warriors or the cowboys i'd like to look into that and see if there's any correlation between definitely is i mean you don't have to look at the stats to know that that's mm. every time there was a big run from a out of town team it was because on the away record mm. because the home record always stood yeah firm ish mm. yeah even fortress brookville <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that was that was canberra's season so we'll turn to Manly, who started second favourites uh, at seven to two. They had a beautiful team back then. Yeah, it was it was underrated how stacked this team was. Um, I've got a bit of a preamble before I go through some of those players, but like when I was just putting my notes together, I was like, "Oh wait, Chris Close was in this team as well." Like I just forgot. By that point, he was like running on fumes. He like barely played first grade that year. Played in the reserve grade grand final. But he's not a guy to have around the club. Yeah, yeah, the lifter yeah. club. Yeah, but so like all throughout the the squad, it was like internationals, blokes who'd been there and done it, and you know, great young talent. And and the the thing about it was the constant criticism of Manly is you know buying comps, you know, you know throwing their checkbooks around, you know all that sort of stuff. But beyond Michael O'Connor, who was like the big off season buy, like hardly any of the other players had played at other. Sydney clubs, or if they had it, was someone like Ron Gibbs, who you know wasn't like that highly fancied when when yeah, they yeah. got him and turned him into a you know borderline rep player. And you, you talk about Mal going to Brisbane, how that would have changed things. Um, obviously, we've talked about um, Wally Lewis and, and Gene Miles, uh, all but signed at Manly for the '87 season, how that would have changed things. But they almost got Mal Meninga when he first was going to come down Good to Sydney. Lord. I mean, you can take this with a grain of salt, but Paul Vorton's account of it says that he he was signed, he was going to come, but then suddenly it didn't happen. And, and so Fatty asked him what happened. And Mal said, mate, I was keen to come, but I hadn't quite made up my mind. Then one day we were playing a game at Lang Park and I'd had a few beers after the match and got home about midnight. And just after I got to sleep, the phone rang. It was this official for Manly. He asked me what I was going to do. I said, fair go. It's after midnight. I've just got home. Couldn't we talk about this tomorrow? But he said I was jerking them around and he had to know right then and there. I told him to get stuffed and hung up the phone. That was it. I never heard from them again. 
That's not true. Sure. I, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I, I, I like the idea of it, but like some manly official, like, you know, having a few, a few drinks and just, you know, oh, is he coming or not? Like, well, let me throw a name out there. <laughs> One name doubled. Peter Peters. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, as it turns out, the, the center pairing they had that year were no slouches themselves with Michael O'Connor switching from St. George and Daryl Williams coming over from New Zealand. That's awesome center pairing. Mm. Um, I love like so Michael O'Connor was already you know like a dual international. Manly got him be- signed him before the '86 Kangaroo tour. If they had tried to sign him afterwards, his value probably would have been double. So they got a, got a good deal for Michael O'Connor, who coincidentally was was a, a working at Wormold at the time. <laughs> I mean, every time I still see that company, occasionally I'll see it on a van or something. Yeah. It just reminds me of the, of the Halcyon days. Like, yeah. There's great sponsorships. Mm. Wormhole. Yeah. <laughs> what a stupid sponsor. Um, but, it's a fire alarm, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so being a St. George fan, like, I, I, rem- I still remember it. Like, my dad telling me that we didn't like Michael O'Connor anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and he he does have a kind of like you know he like he left he left St George he went to Manly he you know finished up he was with with Super League for a while then he just went back to the Raras that annoyed me yeah like when he, you never hear from him in rugby league context I like when a Rara really d- disowns Rara like yeah. Stuart mm. and it's just like no nah, yeah I'm a league man yeah when they go back it's no good yuck yeah uh, but. This is my favourite part about the, the Michael O'Connor signing. He, of course, had to break the news to his St. George coach, Roy Masters, <laughs> um, to which... Uh, so, they met in a, in a Sydney cafe where O'Connor announced he was going to Manly and Roy Masters said, Not Manly. They've done it to me again. <laughs> <laughs> Up there with the Sattler reaction. <laughs> um, but he made an instant... Instant impact and and you know huge reason why they they won the comp that year. He must have been up there for the Rothmans mm. himself. Yeah, because I remember they, that that year he was like mm. the gun. Yeah, back the other well, one of the other big turning points for, for Manly that year after you know showing promise for you know a few seasons before was finally nailing down their halves pairing. So there'd always been like a few players in the mix. You had Phil Blake there. Cliff Lyons was playing like lock half the time. I just can't see Cliffy as a lock. Mm, yeah, but so 1987 was uh, the year that Phil Blake went to went to Souths. He um, got got sent off in his first game back at Brookvale, playing for Souths. To which he said, "It's ironic, isn't it?" <laughs> I was like, "I know, like <laughs> laughing about misuse of irony is like the most hack thing in the world, but like, what's ironic about that?" <laughs> Let's talk about Phil Blake for a minute because is he the um, is he the archetypical sort of me player? I don't I don't know what it is with Phil Blake. Like wins didn't winning comps didn't seem to follow him. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you say me player, do you mean just selfish? Like I don't know if it's selfish or just he just it was a halfback and it was more about chip and chase as yeah, opposed yeah, to yeah. organising. Mm. I know he's a great player and everything, but like he didn't get any comps, did he? No. Um, he leaves Manly. They win a comp. Yeah. Yeah, that gun south side, I didn't get it done. Mm. But yeah, in my lineage of like, I always had like, you know, crushes on players growing up, you know, I went from like 
Slippery Morris, Phil Blake, Greg Alexander, Laurie Daly. You know, I'd always have players that like. I remember eighty nine. I was a Phil Blake yeah, booster. It was it was the best ever. You know, he was so good. But for that, whatever that's reason, what I mean. All flesh. Yeah, mm. that's my query. I don't know if it's factual. I don't know if it's selfishness more than just like didn't have the necessary drive or mm. care. I mean, he that's kind of how he carried himself, right? Well, yeah, so that's, that's what I'm getting at. Mm. I, look, I look at him, I look at Nick Arima now, and I'm thinking he's Phil Blakeish. Mm. He's not a halfback's halfback. Anyway, I, I think Fatty Fatty's quote about him, I, I really like. I like Phil. He's a good bloke, but he was always a disappointment to me. Having seen him that year, this was the year where he scored, you know, 27 tries and was like lights out all year in '83. Having seen him that year, I thought he could have been anything, but he just never went on with it. He should have played for Australia at the very least. He had pace, skills, he was tough in defence, but he just never kicked on. He had one good year for South, but apart from that, he just never looked like the same player again. Yeah, so why is that? Mm. A bit of Hainish in it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's hard to say, but it's a, it's a real shame. You look back fondly from, by rugby league people, though, yeah. generally. Well, I, I love him, you know. Yeah, interesting. Mm. But yeah, so I did mention that Des Hasler's form that year was great. He was actually neck and neck with Peter Sterling for um, the Rugby League Week award for most of the year. He was seven? He was seven, and Who yeah. was six? Uh, Cliffy. Oh, Cliffy went back yeah. to six, yeah. yeah. Well, I still think Des Hasler's playing career is underrated. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, the, I think the utility just hurts a bloke. Mm. But Jesus, he was great for t- to the mid-90s. Yeah. Um, yeah, the fact that he agreed to have his book called The Utility Player. <laughs> do, you, do you know who wrote his book? <laughs> Thomas Keneally. Oh, Really? Fair there you go. Um, have a guess where he starts the Hasler story. The beach at Manly? No, his convict ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> he has a whole chapter like detailing like the birth of rugby league and the history of the game in Australia. Too funny. You could tell like reading that book that he thought he was going to bring his Tom Keneally fan base. Like people like, you know, little little old, you know, Beryl in Northbridge is going to buy the, the book because <laughs> it's Tom Keneally. <laughs> it's like the least rugby league book of all time. Like. It must be unreadable. <laughs> you, you, you get a rugby league book, you want to read cliches. You don't want, you don't want anything said in it. You just want... But funnily, funnily enough, that year he was developing a reputation as a bit of a hothead. Des? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which I, I never really like saw as a player. Obviously, we've seen a fair bit of it as a coach. But, like, he always seemed like, you know... It had the surfy look, so everyone thought he was chilled out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, what I liked about him was he was a consistently 100% giver. Mm. So, you got 110 out of him every time he pulled on a jersey, especially for the Blues. Yeah. Just, um, yeah, always rated him. Mm. But you're right. Like, Kangaroo, multiple origins, premierships. Like, he, you know, he was a class player. Just slotting in at halfback for the Blues, playing on the wing, mm. uh, do a bit of lock, you know, yeah. like whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so that 87 was the year that Cliff Lines finally was a 5'8". And I agree with you. It, it seems inexplicable, inexplicable to me that he was ever considered a, a lock. Well, are we just saying that because of his sublime ball skills and like slow pace of playing the game, mm. slowing the game down to his pace? If he put his mind to it and got him a gym, he probably could have been a sick lock. Yeah. But, a lock in that era, like yeah. obviously not in the you know the modern, in the middle forward. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I mean, the the ultimate five eighth, mm. the five eighth on which all other five eighth plays judged pretty much. Yeah, it's like why can't we get more ball players like Cliffy? <laughs> and how how much are Norths kicking themselves? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and uh, funnily enough, the the reason he he ended up at Manly after leaving leaving Norths, um, 
has some uh, some familiar handprints all over it. So he was at North under Greg Howick, who was uh, I think fifty six kangaroo. Uh, he was brought in to coach North by their then chairman Ken McCaffrey, um, but he got Howick got sacked after a season because you know they weren't doing good on the on the field, and so Cliff Lyons was was a bit perturbed by that because he likes playing for him. So Greg Howick happened to be friends with. Roy Bull, who was the boss of Manly then, and Arco, who was who was the the boss of the rugby league, technically not the boss of Manly, <laughs> the boss of the rugby league. But so because they were all old friends, and it's like, oh, hey, Roy, I've got got this young fella, Cliff Lyons. What do you reckon? You know, and so off he went to Manly. Talk about the one that got away, <laughs> bloody hell! Imagine that ninety-one style with Cliffy in it. Yeah, yeah. And again, like hothead reputation, like it, it was viewed that he had to, you know. Stop starting fights and you know, like getting riled up in games. See, I can't see that either. Yeah, I know, I know. It's amazing. Yeah, but um, <clears throat> but that was one of the big points. Uh, the big talking points in the '87 season was that Cliff Lines had turned around his you know hot-headed ways that had robbed him of rep jerseys in '86. Don't you love it when players really mature from something into something? Like quite often, you'll see Drongos their whole career stay Drongos. Yeah, like even Dugan's matured now yeah, at yeah. 29, whatever the hell it is, <laughs> but. Guys like us remember Cliffy as the puppet master playing at his sublimely slow pace. But back then he was erratic and, yeah. and quick off the mark mm. and chip and chase. Him. Yeah. But I mean, he never really lost that from his game. You know, like um, I remember watching the, the 88, the, the Broncos versus Manly game in 88, not too long ago. And he, um, he was, he, he, there was this one spectacular piece of play where he made this break, but then like, you know, through through a dumb pass, but Manly recovered, and you know, and then he got the ball again, and the same thing kind of happened. And, <laughs> um, Rex Mossop said, "Cliff Lyons, he touched the ball three times in that play, and he bombed two tries." You know? <laughs> so that was always the kind of knock on him, like just taking the wrong decision, right? Okay, which, which I guess comes with the territory of being, you know, like forever labelled a mercurial <laughs> talent. <laughs> and uh, he ended up making his his rep his Origin debut in '87, but that prospect was looking unlikely when he was omitted from the city country team but not uh he was omitted from all the city country teams and so yeah city country was like so ludicrous that year because you effectively had four city teams picked <laughs> so you had city first and city seconds and then there was also the the city country origin so if you weren't picked in one of those teams it meant that you were outside the top like 60 players <laughs> and Cliff Lines couldn't get a, a run at any of those teams. Is that the year Sterling played for City? Um, I think, I th I'm pretty sure this was the first year of City Country Origin. Right, okay. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not sure if he played in that. I remember, I remember Sterling played, Toowoomba born, grew up in Wagga, yeah. played for City and it's mm. like, what the hell's going on yeah. with this? <laughs> uh, and then there was the captain, uh, Paul Vorden, who... Uh, I didn't. I didn't realize how he got his nickname Fatty, but uh, it was when he first got to Manly in like '81 or whatever it was. Uh, Fred Jones, premiership winning captain, he was the reserve grade coach at the time, and he saw Paul Vorton, who you know just arrived to training, and said, "Who's this little Fatty then?" <laughs> One of the greatest stories. <laughs> I remember it from his biography yesterday. But now let me ask you this: today that would be called fat shaming, mm. and we, he wouldn't have had that media career without that name, yeah. Fatty. <laughs> <laughs> but how's um? How's the origins of, of Cliff Lyons' nickname, Napa, which I've always not liked. I don't, don't yeah, like that. It sounds like an old um, English detective's nickname. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this was, uh, this was Bozo's uh, explanation for the nickname. 
Cliff always had an ordinary looking melon. He always appeared to have a large head and the curly hair just made it stand out more. I called him Napper one day at training. It's just a slang term for head. Have a look at your Napper, I said to him, and the other players latched onto it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, all through the ages, how bad your melon has, yeah. has just been <laughs> it's permeated rugby league. <laughs> so Fatty was the captain of Manly at the time, but the Manly board at the start of the year decided to take it off him and give it to Noel Cleal. And it's so funny... T- to think of, you know, Bob Fulton having his, you know, marionette strings all over rugby league for the last 30 years. But the decision was actually out of his hands. He went up to Fatty, uh, you know, just before Fatty was going to be told of the news and said, oh, mate, we've got a problem. You're going to lose the captaincy. That was super close back then. Yeah. Mm. And, and But you had this, like, ludicrous situation where Noel Cleal was injured for the early part of the year. So they took the captaincy off Fatty. But then because Noel Cleal was, was injured, he got to, to keep it. But it was like, you know, this sort of Damocles over his head. Oh, when Crush is back, you know, you're out. It's very demoralizing to lose the captaincy in rugby league. Mm. You can always spin it as in like, now I can focus on my own game, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's a real reputation blow. Yeah. And in, in his book, Fatty was like, you know, pretty, you know, you could see how much it meant to him. And, and at the time he was like... You know, I'm, I'm a test player. I've I've been doing a good, good job here. What's going on? And they just said, no, nah, the decision's final. We're going with Crusher. So who made the decision? Uh, the board. Right. So Doug Daly, who was Manly boss at the time, father of Phil, who was, was their starting prop. The board had power back then. Mm. It wasn't just a local businessman yeah, yeah. trying to get their name in the paper. Yeah, but um, classic bozo maneuvering. So the, the last game before um, Noel Cleal was due to come back, Fatty had a blinder, and so at training that week, um, Bob Fulton said to, to Noel Cleal, oh, sorry, like, Fatty's doing really well. We're going to stick with Fatty for now, um, to which Noel Cleal said, no worries. You know, Like like with everything about Noel Cleal, he just gave the impression that he'd rather be out pig shooting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, he, the Bozo kind of took it out of the board's hands, and they had no real recourse because the team was winning. So they were ringing him up saying, what's going on? When are you going to you know, give Cleal the captaincy? And he said, well, it's a winning side. <laughs> you can't argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so Fatty like took it personally, even if Noel Cleal didn't really care. This is what Fatty said. I was dirty on him. I blamed him for what had happened and I shouldn't have. It probably had nothing to do with him. He was just the one who I focused everything on. I thought there was a conspiracy to take the job off me and I thought Crusher was at the center of it. If anybody's not at the center of it. Yeah. Um, just a little aside, do you know what uh, Noel Cleal's job was that year? <laughs> what? Stagehand on Good Morning Australia. <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> I love Crusher. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who got him the job, but he said it was... Um, it was a lot more manageable. He only had to get up at 6 a.m., which is easy because uh, since we were kids, my brother Les and I would be up early setting rabbit traps or pig shooting, and it's become a habit. <laughs> How many pigs has he murdered in his <laughs> lifetime? Can I ask you that? <laughs> but, I mean, the the results speak for, the, for, speak for themselves. And on grand final day, there was a photo of Noel Cleal and Bob Fulton and Paul Voughton around the cup. And Fulton had it framed and, and sent out a copy to each of um, Crusher and Fatty. So it was like kind of a nice little... Grand final cures all at ALG. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was, speaking of players in the media, uh, this was Sherlock in the Rugby League Week in 1987. Media organisations should be waiting with huge nets to snare Paul Voughton as a commentator when his football career finishes. Fatty is a true original. 
He's already had one lash on the ABC and handled it like an old pro. Vaughton is both candid to the point of brutal honesty and funny. He fired up the 2G mo- 2GB mob and Howe pre-match last Sunday. Jaws went back into place only when Hollywood, Zolber and Clarko ended the interview. It was lively stuff. I mean, that's very uh, astute, but it's uh, it's also obvious. But let's just say about his ABC professionalism, that's when he... When he just goes, oh fuck, in the middle in the middle of a live <laughs> interview, like, and then sort of like look, look disorientated in it, and Warren Bowen's looking looking like one o'clock half struck to say that's professional. Um, yeah, so that's so rugby league to see. Then you go, this place a star. <laughs> he was there. <laughs> um, so the other massive one that year was Kevin Ward, who they they brought over as a mid season um, transfer from England, and this was in the era where that was like going on both ways how good is is the lineage to quote yourself mm. of english imports yeah it's yeah. just magic mm. i liked it better when it was half a season yeah as opposed to the, like, what it is now when you've got legendary english players like morley and burgess and whatever yeah but the, the, the half a season ellery hanley a fire ellery hanley's the crazy one because i, I neglected to him, mention him in my lineage of like you know rugby league crushes because he was like my guy in 88 like i, I loved it so much him so much I cannot believe he only played eight games. It's so like implanted on my mind those eight games. Like it's like when I looked up the Ella brothers' careers because I kept hearing Rara talking about the Halcyon days of running rugby. I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> listeners, and they played like three tests and like thirteen <laughs> tests or something, like some ridiculously low number. It's like oh, that was your Halcyon days, was it? Three and a half months. So, um, and and Bozo had the highest. Like respect for Kevin Ward, even though he played only played like that season. Um, Bob Fulton said that he'd have him as his starting prop in his best ever Manly team. Hard man, yeah. Oh, the hardest man, Castleford kind of guy, you <laughs> know, like, coached by Mal really. <laughs> Jesus. And uh, like with with O'Connor, like probably the the key difference between the Manly of the the last few years that would always fall just short of winning and the team that just went all the way. And so he wasn't supposed to be there on grand final day because he had to be back in Castleford, which he knew he knew once he signed that that was the case. But then later in the year, as Manly started going good, he realised that he he wanted to be there on grand final day. Well, Manly, <laughs> I mean, what sort of signing is going to leave before the grand final? But I mean, but this is what I'm saying. Like he knew that was the deal. Yeah, I mean, this is what he said upon signing. If things go well over here, the earliest I can get to Sydney is by the weekend of May 23, and I'll need to be back by August 26. Like, he knew the deal when he signed. <laughs> and Manly did too, presumably. But so it started this season-long back and forth. Castleford's boss refused to negotiate with Kevin Ward until he was back in England. Um, he couldn't get a release. Even when, he, even when they finally relented and, and let him go back for the grand final, and then, like, told him he had to be on a, on a plane, like... You know, Monday morning because they had a game against second division Featherstone, <laughs> a team they were expected to beat by forty points. You want to talk about the Australian boards? Imagine the hard-headed English boards. Jesus. And the other, this is this is the other like oh you forget these people are, are in the in the team like when you just keep talking about these players. Dale Shearer was their fullback. Amazing. And this was like absolute like prime like this guy's a superstar. There was even a headline in the Sydney Morning Herald that year, is Shearer a better player than Ken Irvine? Like, wow. All this was on the table and, like, you know, club career didn't didn't really pan out. Just such bad club signing decisions. Yeah, yeah. Over and over again. 
Uh, one of my favorite like aspects of the Dale Shearer story is the fact that him and Martin Bella were like, you know, Serena school classmates and, and best friends. It's so cool. <laughs> um, this, this was an article profiling Dale Shearer in the Rugby League Week that year. During a game of friendly schoolboy touch football several years ago, a youthful Martin Bella stuck out at his opponent. The blow, aimed at a rascally teenager, glanced off him and to everybody's horror struck the referee. The teenager's name was Dale Shearer. The referee was Shearer's headmaster at Serena State School in North Queensland. And fortunately for, fortunately for Bella, the ref took the accident in good humour. Bella and Shearer, teammates in last night's state of origin, were actually the best of friends. They spent most of their teenage years together in the tiny sugar town on the Whitsunday coast. Six years on, they've established themselves as world-class players in the game's toughest competition. I hope they're still good mates. Yeah. I think we need to do like a mini history on Martin Bella. Like such a like funny character. Like the, the but, kind of... But he was like an undeserved villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because he's a player for Queensland. Yeah. <laughs> and just with the mo and the kind of fatness, like he just looked like a really dumb prop. And then he's like, was the smartest guy in the league. Yeah, probably. yeah. And playing the ball backwards. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I always think he's a great player. Yeah. And then just, just quickly, uh, Ron Gibbs is the last player I'll talk about who, again, we've mentioned him before, signed with Gold Coast, uh, for for eighty eight and this caused outrage among Manly fans. They held up a, a sign at the next Brookvale game saying, Give back Terry Randall's jumper. <laughs> <laughs> but a, another kind of another hothead who managed to turn it around and uh, When did he turn it around? It, well, turn it around enough. Like <laughs> Bozo had to have a word in his ear after eighty six that he had to temper his aggression. Um and I'll give you two two Ray Price quotes as evidence of how he managed to do this. This was uh, on the 4th of March, 1987. Manly cannot afford to have Ron Gibbs in their first grade side unless a miracle happens and he dramatically changes his ways. The bloke can't control himself. <laughs> and this was the 22nd of July, 1987. Manly are kidding themselves if they have any thoughts of winning the Winfield Cup without Ron Gibbs. <laughs> Firstly, if Ray Price is telling you that you're out of control in aggression, <laughs> how aggressive have you got to be? Well, I guess the thing is with Ray Price, it was all, you always hear controlled aggression. Yeah, right. You do, actually. <laughs> I think with Ron Gibbs, it was like wildly uncontrolled aggression. <laughs> and and he did turn around. I think he got, um, you know, he might have got cited once or twice that year, but he had a, a really good year to the point where everyone says he was robbed of New South Wales jersey and... It was probably his reputation that kept him out of it. This kamikaze, uh, intimidating sort of hitman role up there with the Villa Santi of 2002. Mm. Certain teams have always had that that trope. Yeah. Those guys. Mm. John Lomax, Canberra. Yeah. You know? I, I love the, the candor of, of players in this era. This was uh, Ron Gibbs on not being picked for New South Wales that year. I have to admit I was pretty disappointed in not being chosen. When Canterbury got flogged by St. George on the Saturday, Steve Folks, Paul Langmack, and Paul Dunn didn't do much. I thought it was a direct contest between me and Paul Sirenen at Brookvale. When Sirenen had a pretty low game and I went okay, I was feeling pretty happy with myself. But that's over now. I've got to keep going. Can you think of any player now going, you know, like, you know, oh, when these blokes played shit on Saturday, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, another Rambo. So you've got Fatty, Rowdy, Crusher, Rambo, Napa. Great, great, uh, great nickname team. Except for that, Choppy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we've got to talk about Bozo. Nickname of the, of, the, of the millennia. Nickname of the millennia. And and just as a coach, you know, like, so this 87 was his eighth year as a coach in Sydney. He hadn't won a comp until this year, but he, he'd taken teams to the minor premiership four times. 
basically everyone who played with him, like he was their favorite coach, and all they talk about is how good a coach he was. Um, the other the other big thing when he went back to Manly from Ace is he took um, Kerry Packer with him. Kerry Packer basically like bankrolled Manly. <laughs> oh, I always think about Kerry Packer being a South fan. Mm. Then he's at East. Then yeah. he's at Manly. And he's back at East. It's yeah. like what pleasure to get a bankrolling these other sides. I know. Yeah, it's weird. Mm. Um, but yeah, there, there are always rumors that like you know it, it, he was a bit clicky. You know, you were either in or you were out. But I kind of think it's it's not like an Alan Jones situation where those clicks kind of reveal something deep seated about his personality. I think the Bob Fulton click is more like. Can you help me win football games? <laughs> yeah. If so, welcome to the click. Do you enjoy country outings with rifles and pigs? <laughs> and uh, as an innovator, like I think maybe he he doesn't get the credit he deserves. You know, Fatty said that he his approach to using video was well ahead of the curve. It wasn't just you know like put on the game and everyone watch it. It was like isolating key plays and you know like everything you're watching you're watching for a reason which sounds straightforward enough forward enough now mm. but it wasn't something that was necessarily being done well in the old days they had to put the video on a whole 80 minutes imagine keeping the footy team's <laughs> attention for that but uh i remember bozo when he was the australian coach and he was untouchable he was a legend of a mortal player and an immortal coach but this is the the making of him isn't it yeah yeah so he got the australian gig i'm pretty sure the next year off off the back of all this yeah um, and a lot of a lot of another precursor to the modern era. Th- this was Ray Price on some Bob Fulton's tactics. Let me comment on probably the biggest sham in the game right now: the constant visits by his robot runner onto the field with his walkie-talkie. Other than being a blot on the game, it also belittles his players in a big way. Does Fulton think his players have got no brains at all? Can't he trust them to play forty minutes at a time without persistent instructions? I wish we'd talk heat of Ray Price yeah, back then. <laughs> <laughs> um, this this was also the year of the the uh, Bill Harrigan. Uh, I hope he gets hit by a cement truck <laughs> incident. Which, uh, I mean, Bozo had form in, in terms of his reputation with referees. And um, I, I, I just, I love this quote so much. Uh, this was talking about um, uh, Ron Gibbs did got, get cited on a charge that year. Uh, Fulton said, there is no way Gibbs, Gibbs could have done it. I've looked at the incident on the video. And if I was adjudicating on it, he'd be exonerated. <laughs> And so the cement truck incident came because uh, Harrigan was um, refing Manly against Cronulla and he sent Des Hasler to the Sinbin for um, about his scrum feeds and there was uh, inconsistent reports over whether Hasler was warned or not. Wait a second. You get Sinbin for what not feeding in the middle? Yeah. Repeatedly? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so um, Bob Fulton first <clears throat> first made the call directly to... Uh, Bill Harrigan in the tunnel saying, I hope you get hit by a truck, a cement truck. I like I like the time to think about what type of truck he wants. <laughs> and then he doubled down at the press conference and said, I hope he gets hit by a cement truck. To which the, the New South Wales Rugby League's response was, was pretty poor. I don't think they did right by Harrigan in this. They didn't let him ref a manly game for the next 14 weeks. And like he was a young ref at that stage and they were kind of easing him into to first grade. But I mean, what does that do for your... You're, Talk you're about protected there. species. I mean, there's always been that thing. It's Cameron Smith's got it now, where the greatest ever players <laughs> ride rough shot over the referees. It's yeah. pathetic, isn't it? Mm. But yeah, so Harrigan was developing his his reputation at that time. 
Young Bill Harrigan reminds me a lot of Greg Hartley as a referee. Outwardly, he's not the show pony Hartley was, but Young Bill is similar in the way he addresses the players on the field. He's never, ever wrong and appears to have an obsession in proving he's the boss. He also has a penchant for commanding center stage, as Hartley did in his prime. We definitely do not need another Hollywood. (laughs) Never has true words been spoken. (laughs) Do you think he would have got tagged Hollywood if his name didn't start with H? Probably. I mean, they tagged Harrigan Hollywood. Oh, no, I mean mean Harrigan. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think so, because back to the lineage of Hartley and then also his lariness. Like, I mean, obviously it sounds way better, but... I don't think there's been any other referee in in our era who had that same like aura. I used to go to school with a guy who's a real funny guy. He's real dour, and I call him Hollywood as like a <laughs> insult. You know, like that was in the, the arrogant era. Yeah, yeah. But um, like just seeing that there, like they're just describing the greatest referee in the history of the game as like a problem. Mm, so yeah. like, they're even complaining about yeah, the yeah. good referees. <laughs> oh, like it, it was all over the, in, in this year, in this year, like it was, you know, relationships between players and referees have reached breaking point. You know, like these were the headlines, you know, it's, it's just inescapable. <laughs> so the, the knock on Manly for, for the, the few years leading up to 1987 was the Manly staggers. They always started the season well, and then it, you know, the wheels fell off. And Bob Fulton was was often attributed attributed with that blame. The reasoning being that people thought he trained his players too too hard towards the the back end of the season, and that seemed to all stem from the nineteen eighty grand final where they lost to the Bulldogs, um, and he trained really hard in the in the week leading up to it. Um, so that that reputation kind of followed him. But Noel Clill came out and said because he was playing for East that year said no it it, it was just that. The players in that team were big schooner drinkers. <laughs> it was the only way to keep them from the pub. <laughs> well, I don't like the fact that you referred to them as the Bulldogs when they're clearly the entertainers. <laughs> that quote there, right, that just sums up, this is the 80s and it was still like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so th- this was this was the, the reputation Manly had and I'm, I'm going to – this was after the, the Bulldogs had beaten Parramatta and basically ended their season. Steve Mortimer said this, When the siren sounded at Belmore last Sunday, I have to confess I felt a huge sigh of relief. Mind you, I'm not prepared to say even now that Parramatta have finished. They're not the sort of side you ride off when there's even a sniff of possibility they may revive. But I do know, should Canterbury make it to the final hurdle on grand final day, I would much rather be playing Manly than Parramatta. Wow. So again, you, you wouldn't get a player now coming out and saying that but what year did the don't give the opposition ammunition come in i don't know because it seems to make sense to not do that you know? no, like, these history corners have proved at least to the late 80s yeah ammunition wasn't a problem yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh so we, we were going to finish up this history corner now but we've actually got a lot to talk about with the grand the semi-finals and the grand final itself can i put something to you yeah. live mm. why don't we watch the grand final in full and discuss it on part three of the History Corner. Uh, we will do that, and I invite all our listeners to do the same. So it's available on YouTube. The best thing about the video on YouTube is it actually has the prezos and a lot of the the non-game elements of the coverage. Have you watched it already? I, I watched it during the week. Oh, yeah. cool. I'm going to so, watch it. Yeah, please do. And and again, to our listeners, uh, watch it too. We'll have a lot to talk about next week. Final.
so before we get to the grand final itself, we'll, we'll just set it up with the semi-finals that year. So you had Manly, the runaway minor premiers, three wins clear on 41 points. You had East, uh, second on 35, Cameron 34, Balmain 33, South 31. Wow. So uh, Kyle Kutasi, our, our frenemy of the show, uh, <laughs> Mentioned in our, our Facebook comments that we didn't mention the inexplicable rise of East that year, uh, undoubtedly the high watermark of Arthur Beetson's coaching career. They went from ninth in 1986, finished second, and then promptly went back and finished 12th in 1988. Was that the uh, the David Truella? Yes, yeah, season. Yeah, Truella, uh, uh, Trevor Gilmeister. Steve Slipman Morris won our Rugby League week Winger of the Year in, I think, his first year at the club. Amazing. So, a uh, pretty decent team. So, they actually beat Canberra in the first semi-final. And I want to, I want us to talk about the talk a bit about the top five system because I've always maintained that it was like the best system. You know, if you, if you finished first, second, or third, you had to lose twice to not make the grand final. Yeah, I always loved that. But then when I just Looked at this semi-final series, how it played out on paper. So Manly won their... For younger listeners who might not remember the system, basically the first week of the finals, the minor premier had the week off. Two played three for the right to play them. Four and five played an elimination final. The next week, the minor premier would play the winner of two versus three, the winner of that game going into the grand final, and on it went from there. And Canberra won it from fifth in 89, which was considered impossible. Mm. It was it was beautiful that system, and mm. I'd love to have it now. There's too many teams, but it's uh, every time the mighty premiers got the week off, someone would say sometimes it could be a hindrance. Well, <laughs> um, this an article I read about Manly winning their first game said only four of the last fourteen minor premiers who had had that week week off went on to to win the the grand final. Amazing, yeah. So. As I said, I always thought it was the best system. But then when, when I looked at these semifinals, so Manly won their first game, was straight into the grand final. So they played two games total in that semifinal series. Canberra played four games, including the grand final. Like, is it too much reward for the minor premiers? I don't think so. I think there's not enough reward for it now, to be honest. I think if you played it well all season, you should get something for it. Mm. Basically, the top four is like all you need yeah. in this day and age. But um, I don't know. It, it just seems quite... Quite a, a difference. Four games. Well, they shouldn't have lost the first yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> very true. So they did lose that first one. So East went on to play Manly. I wanted to basically start the the you know the main part of our conversation with Cameras next game against Souths, uh, which will forever be known as the Steve Maven game. Well, I watched that today for recording. I've read about it all my life through Mario Fenwick's book, George Pickens' book, all this legendary uh, mishaps. This game. Why was Rex Moss calling him Marvin? Yeah, I noticed that too. <laughs> Everyone else on the commentary is calling him Maven, and he's calling him Marvin. It's so funny because I watched it as well, and, and, and you're right, he was going Marvin. I'm like, I always thought it was Maven. Then I heard Graham Hughes say, like, Maven. I'm like, but that's so Rex to, like, say, well, no, you don't know how you pronounce your name. This is how you say it correctly, how I'm saying it. So, again, for anyone who doesn't know, you can watch this game on YouTube. The full game is up. You only have to watch the first 16 minutes because at that point, uh, Steve Maven, after three um, critical errors, two of them leading directly to Canberra tries, was pulled off by George Piggins. And this was a guy who was in blistering form all season. Yeah. And this was the funny thing about when I was researching this history corner, I basically read every rugby league week 
every, you know, like all the newspaper articles that year. So you knowing how it ends and what and reading it in March, like this guy was like a budding superstar. You you can see this try he scored against Penrith where he just basically cut through the whole team, like you know. You do know remind me of Brett Mullins a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So even at this early stage, you could see warning signs. So this was this was from the Rugby League Week in March. South coach George Piggins had told exciting new centre Steve Maven to keep the swan dive for the swimming pool. The speedy teenager was the hero of South's opening win of the Winfield Cup with his two tries. One of them, this is the one I was talking about, highlighted by a Teddy Goodwin-style salute and dive. He's an excellent prospect, but he has to realise he's not playing park football anymore, Piggins said. The swan dive is something we'll be talking about. He was uh, castigated in the media for an unnecessary dive to score his try. Early lariness. Early lariness. So that that was in March. In in June, he was again pulled off by George Piggins for mouthing off and getting a warning from the referee. He was in danger of being sent off. So George Piggins acted. Hang first. on, this is a team with Mario Fennick in it. Yeah, and he's pulling him off for arguing with the ref. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it, it was more arcing up at um, opposing players. Right. They were they were getting up him by calling him a big head, to which he <laughs> reacted badly. <laughs> Uh, in, in the Rugby League week after this incident, Sherlock said, they call talented Sydney, South Sydney centre Steve Maven, marvellous Maven out at Redfern. If he doesn't stop getting carried away with his sudden success and show a bit of discipline, they'll be calling him Maven the Mug. Grow up, kid. So we've had evidence of lairishness. Now we've got mug behaviour. <laughs> He's qualifying for the, the only thing in Rugby League worse than being a mug or a lair, and that's being a mug lair. <laughs> See, so when there's always when there's innuendo in the rumor mill, right? That means there's ten incidents that have happened. Yeah. So is it alcohol related? Is, uh, is it just attitude? I, th- I think it was attitude. Like he was this 19 year old kid with you know the world at the feet, water his feet. So he thought, you know, he had endless pace. Like he was viewed as like this hot, hot young prospect. It's tragic, man. Like it's become a cautionary tale. Yeah. So basically, he dropped a ball. Uh, early in in the semi, which Canberra didn't score from score from that set, but it it piled the pressure on like right off the bat. Then he collided with a teammate. Uh, Canberra recovered the ball and scored. And then finally, the instant for which he came off the field, he dropped it, dropped a, a ball, and it basically went straight into a Canberra player's arm. Well, he's so, trying to trap it with his legs. Yeah, didn't he? yeah. I don't think that was that bad. It it was kind of the worst one of all, though. Like the the way it looked, it put like, the nail in the coffin as well. Yeah, but. yeah. And suddenly it was sixteen nil with as many minutes gone. Maven was off. Uh, George Piggins afterwards said his confidence was shot. I thought I was being kind to him, which is like the most classic, like old school, like hard Aussie bloke <laughs> kindness. You know, oh, the, the bloke he just he just you know put him out of his misery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Maven went off and didn't even stay at the ground. Like he went, he he, you know. Packed up his stuff, went straight to the Cauliflower Hotel. It wasn't even half time by that point. So he walks in, and everyone there watching the game were like, "Imagine seeing that! <laughs> yeah, Can you imagine seeing that? Why yeah. did he go home?" Well, he did before full time, and his mum had to turn the turn the radio off out of kindness. So the innuendo in Mario Fennick's book was well, not innuendo. Accusations was that. He was out on the drink the night before and was worse for wear in the morning. This is uh, what I read in Mario's book. Mm. And he begged Piggins not to play him. Really? What, what Mario begged him? Yeah. Or maybe, yeah. 
and uh, Pickens Buster said he'll, she'll be right. And then Mario's always blamed uh, the fact that he was out on the, the night before or something like that. Well, the, the, that would explain this. this. So Maven was interviewed by Matt Cleary for Fox about the game just last year. And I'll just read this. In the in goal, it was made clear to Maven that the try was his fault. South had a hard edge. The culture wasn't chin up, son. It was unforgiving. A man's world. I didn't really like that about the team, says Maven. Look at how hard that team was, though. Yeah. Davidson, Chisholm. Um, Ian Roberts. Ian Roberts. Les, oh, you said Les Davidson, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. Not, not guys you want to uh, disappoint. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to bring up was the unexpected kindness in how Rex Mossop handled handled the game. Yeah, I, I agree. So, like, early in the season, after that swan swan dive, Rex said that Maven deserved to kick up the bum, which is in, in character. After the second, the second stuff up, Rex said... I feel a bit sorry for Maven. He's got himself in a nice old psychological knot about this game. He's had two blazing errors. And then after the third one, Maven is down on his knees at the moment. Have a look at him. The poor lad, there's an absolute shock for him. Heavens above, everything in his world is falling around him at the moment. He can't believe that rugby league can be as cruel as this. Let me tell you it can, son, from long and woeful experience. I thought that was brilliant commentary. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It, it, the whole commentary from him was brilliant, in my opinion. Semis and grand final, just the the authenticity of the man. You, you knew what he was saying. He believed. Yeah, he believed his name was Marvin. <laughs> <laughs> he believed a few other things, but I mean, that's just uh, that's some real old school Aussie kindness there. Mm. And then, and speaking of which, another couple of couple of old school Aussie kindness. So, South went out for you know commiserations that night, and Steve Maven didn't want to be anywhere near it, but Ian Roberts called him up and said no no you got to come out you know so he did come out and I, I don't think he was the most popular guy there but they embraced him yeah i mean that, that's football for you that's good stuff and then um this was a few years later like a, a nice little coda considering everything else that has has happened some years later maven met the man who tormented him that spring afternoon the late peter jackson maven had always disliked the man picked him as a smart ass but they had a beer in the maroobra bay hotel and maven changed his mind he was a great bloke, Jacko, says Maven. I asked him, what happened that day? Why'd you target me? The Raiders, Raiders CEO, John McIntyre, had said they'd always planned to target my wing with kicks. But Jacko said, that's bullshit. I just kicked you the ball once and you dropped it. And then I just kept on doing it. And that was it. I think he's probably been kind to Maven there. Surely that was the plan all along. But he was a young kid. Yeah. Who else would you target? Exactly. You know. Um, I, just before we move on from this incident... It's hard to talk about this and not think of Paul Carriage a decade or so later. This turns my stomach in knots, these two blokes, especially Carriage. Yeah. When your name's synonymous with failure Mm. in pursuing the thing you love, it's just bloody awful. And and this is my theory on this. This is a very half-assed theory. but So Maven went on to play another three or four years, not a great career by any means, but like he, you know, got on with it and, and had a rugby league career. Paul Carriage's career ended that day. Maven at that stage was working at Port Botany on the wharves. You know, like I'm sure that Monday morning, like he would have like copped a whole lot of shit. <laughs> Wouldn't have been a very pleasant experience, but like kind of life went on. Yeah. yeah. Paul Carriage, like his world just was ripped from him. Like it's crazy. just like that. It's only a game at the end of the day. Like what, why, why should he suffer that fate? And I'm sure like me, you've had some spectacular failures in your time. I've got a few coming up. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't doubt <laughs> next week my life most likely. Like, how would you feel if, like, people would talk about, like, an Andrew Paskin award for, like, 
you, you know, stuffing up. I think there's going to be one <laughs> surrounding comedy the way I carry on. But the, um, yeah, it's a tragedy. Mm. But it's also the way you handle it. I mean, I'm of the opinion everyone can go get effed, but uh, he's obviously took it, took it to heart a bit too much. Yeah. I mean, years later, he still wouldn't talk about the incident. Yeah, it's, 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 honestly, it's hurt your stomach in not just thinking yeah. about it. And, and I, Over football for Christ's And that's why I, I hate, like, when it's joked about. And I've been guilty of it in the past as well. Like, you know, it, it's an easy joke to, to reach for, but... That's one thing. Like, you can laugh at Russell Richards and dropping the ball over the line. You don't laugh at a guy's livelihood and passion and dreams being shattered. Yeah. And, like, you know... Mm. But i, I got to say, it's just another piece of evidence that... Don't get peroxide anywhere near your hair <laughs> and play rugby league. <laughs> like, it's, it's, when has it ever worked? Uh, <laughs> I can't think of one, one at a time. But. <laughs> uh, so let, let's keep the, keep the semi finals moving. Manly uh, beat East 10 6 in a bruising semi final. Uh, when Fatty went to East a couple of years later, he said that, uh, East blokes like Hume again, Trevor Gilmeister and David Truella told me it was the toughest game they'd ever played in. I know what they meant. And he said that they had that Manly had about eight blokes fit for training during the week. And so Bozo said, Canberra have got this. There's no way East are getting through this game. That's how it turned out. Manly had all injuries, so they figured East had the injuries. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, but so that, that, Manly, uh, that Canberra-East game, which uh, put Canberra into the grand final, that was Mal's return, Mal's unexpected return. He missed like the most of the season. Missed most of the season. That was his first game back after re-breaking his arm. Considered a big gamble. There was a lot of talk about whether it was the right thing to do. Uh, it was also the origin of speculation about the legality of his arm guard. <laughs> well, I looked at it in the grand final. It wasn't that big. I think it each year an, an extra la- layer got added to it. <laughs> but East actually noticed the strapping in the pregame and... And asked for it to be examined to make sure it wasn't illegal. <laughs> That's good old-fashioned mind games. It's Bellamy-esque. <laughs> and it was also uh, Wayne Bennett in the weeks leading up to that semi-final. They'd ask him about what what turned the Raiders around, where, what, how they got to what, how they got to where they did. And, and Bennett was always coy and said, "Oh, it, it was a it was a conversation I had with with Don Ferner a number of weeks ago that I'm not going to reveal." But once they made the grand final, he revealed it. And it was the decision to start with Ivan Henjak at halfback over Kevin Walters. He said that Walters is just learning what Henjak already knows. And it was a heated conversation, heated argument between him and Ferner that he, you know, got his way in the end. And he said that was what got them into the grand final. I've got to agree. Henjak was uh, old head. It wasn't a superstar, but good, good solid half when good solid halves were a thing. And we mentioned it in our... 1988 Brisbane history corner like there was talk of him going to the, the Knights in in 88 like you wonder what career he would have had if he did leave Canberra then yeah absolutely uh but speaking of Kevin Walters when he came on in the grand final which we'll get to later uh he looked like a, a kid yeah like he was yeah. so young I know so shrewd move Wayne Bennett yeah. who looked very handsome <laughs> on grand final there he did uh so that uh that put Canberra into the grand final the the first one of, of their short existence. Let's talk about that. They had to come in 82, yeah. five years later. That's yeah. like Melbourne Storm stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and, um, and they were whipping boys for the first few years. Yeah, like, exactly. Great I mean, turn it was the, they made a, a playoff for fifth in 84, but it was the first time they made the semifinals. There's going to be a lot of nostalgia talk in this history corner, but <laughs> first, nostalgia off the rank. 
the jerseys, mm. the 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 heavy, wet, dirty look of the jerseys after the game. Like now, when you, they look like the same when they finish and start, yeah, with the shiny stuff. Mm. This heavy. I remember wearing them as a kid, playing in them, and that you know, like it was just like a, a six pound um, shirt. Like that's <laughs> magic to see. I loved it. Even before the um, they got dirty, that Canberra jersey, like I. I so it it was like just a touch lighter than the eighty nine jersey, right? Yeah, it was like a it was closer to army or what mm. I would I would call baby shit green. <laughs> it was like a a gross green. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. it went to lime in yeah eighty nine. I, I quite like it. I got to say, I like the eighty seven ones. Yeah, yeah. So getting into the grand final caused a a, a party on the streets of Queanbeyan. They lined the streets. That there was a you know open car parade. If anyone knows at a party, it's Queen Bear. <laughs> My lord! And there was a lot of criticism uh, in the uh, in the lead up to the grand final, saying that you know you haven't won anything yet, and and maybe hold off on the celebrations. <laughs> I think everyone was probably thinking about then five years in the comp, you got to you got to lose a couple to win one. Yeah, and I, I think we'll, we'll get to the game itself, but I I, I think it was kind of like the the storm last year. I know dickheads like us talked ourselves into the Cowboys winning it in the lead up but looking back there was no way Melbourne weren't winning the comp last year yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was a similar vibe with with Cam with, with Manly and they just had a strong team yeah yeah like an absolute gun team and Bob Fulton in in the lead up to the grand final said Put it this way, with both teams playing to their potential, I'm sure we'll be winners. So, <laughs> and in his, He didn't say it publicly, but in his book, Fatty was saying like, oh, I wasn't really worried about the Raiders. I kind of knew we were going to win. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Seeing Fulton in the stands with sunglasses, dark sunglasses, mm. he, looked like a, he looked like a Russian hitman. He's yeah. like, he was unnerving to look at. <laughs> uh, so to the game itself, and it, it, was, it was a real turning point. Like we've said it before, it was like, I mean, it's, Three hours south of Sydney. It's it's not exactly like you know the Wolfpack, but at the time, like in '97, it was this was this was the Sydney Morning Herald. Whatever Canberra may or may not achieve at the SCG today, they've provided a significant forward movement for rugby league in 1987. First of all, they've announced to everybody that the nationalisation of the game can work. As league faces up to a new expanded competition, Canberra have given everybody real hope that it might just work. We forget that it's pre Broncos, yeah, and it's like. Yeah, so Sydney centric. I want to talk to you about the SCG, the last grand final there. Mm. Fifty one thousand. Yeah, I didn't know it had that capacity. Well, there's still a big hill then. Right. Okay. Yeah. But I've got to say this. I mean, the the distance between the crowd and the ga- and the and the sideline. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we would have been watching ants. Mm. And then we want, to, we want to go back there and play games there. Yeah. Like, no. It's um. It, it's it's. I love the SCG so much. It's a terrible place to watch rugby league. Right? <laughs> And and I think um, some of the facilities there also um, also suggested it was time to move on from the SDG. So it was an, an unseasonably hot day that day. And uh, the, I'll, I'll read this. This was in the aftermath. Players from both clubs described the out, outdated SCG dressing rooms as a disgrace, which became a health danger in last Sunday's heat. With tin roofs, virtually no ventilation, and the sun beaming in through the back windows, the rooms resembled saunas. Both sides had to conduct their pre-match preparation in the front rooms of the sheds, sweating as they sat. Manly skipper Paul Vorton said the heat generated by the tin roof and direct sunlight was overpowering. It hit you as soon as you walked toward the back of the room. We had to sit downstairs out the front. It was too, too hot in the main room. 
That's insane for a start. I remember seeing some of the forwards come out and they poured water over themselves. Yeah. After they went out, they must have been sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, is rugby league, is it the most heat-conscious sport of all time? Whenever there's any heat issue, mm. there's talks of deaths and yeah, yeah. all these sorts of stuff. I know, mm. they, I know they put in a lot of uh, physical exertion, but, I mean, yeah. I think we go overboard with the heat <laughs> warnings. <laughs> but uh, a tactical error by the Raiders coaches getting them to do a 20-minute warm-up, like, at, you know, high pressure before the game. What are they thinking? Yeah. Mm. So, a misstep there. Just before we talk about the game itself, there was already talk at that point. Channel 10 had the had the rights and were really trying to make the 87 grand final a night grand final and were, were pushing for that to happen in the years ahead. So, you wonder how early the night grand final would have come in if 10 had retained the rights. Yeah, I mean, I, I quite quite enjoyed the coverage. It didn't feel like '87 to me. Mm. It felt early '90s ish. Yeah, it felt modernish for, mm. for the time. Tim Webster was involved in the coverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I got to say, like, I, I was I was always like this, you know, traditionalist. Oh, afternoon grand final was so much better. And at heart, I still kind of believe that. But I really, I've really come around on the spectacle of the night grand final. I think. As an event, it works so much better. It's, it, there's a lot more buzz about it. I'd be happy with either, to be honest. I, I can see the benefits in both. Mm. What I did like about this one was the old coverage showing the Leeds Club crowds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wish they they kept doing that. Teaming out with people in the yeah. Leeds Clubs. Like, mm. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's a real hallmark of, of that era, right? Yeah. I remember that, you know, in the, in the next few years, it was always, you know, like Canberra Leagues Club or wherever. Uh, so, let's talk about the game itself. Uh, in part one of this history corner, I told you to put the controversy about the head bin rule under your hat. I want I want you to re- reveal it from your hat now because it actually played a, a key part in Bob Fulton's tactics. So, he manly made the reserve grade final too, uh, which they ended up losing 11-0 to Penrith. But their halfback, Paul Shaw, uh, who was, you know, a kind of nippy little, you know, nippy little halfback, he kept him fresh and had him as a reserve for first grade and exploited the headbin rule by bringing players off and replacing them with Paul Paul Shaw, who'd like dart in when Canberra were getting tired. And um, in the back half of that game, he was like really effective. Yeah, great coaching. Yeah. So Ron Gibbs came off twice for, for a headbin rule and Noel Clear once. Well, let's talk about his head for a start. <laughs> he was wearing like 1968 Olympic boxing headgear. <laughs> Is it a headgear, Alan? I love his headgear. It was it's like a full full mask almost, like a real <laughs> thick and heavy look like about ten kilo headgear. Anyone watching or listening, um, get on there and watch it and mm. uh, check out Ron Gibbs's headgear. Yeah. It's, it's archaic. <laughs> so Paul Shaw, despite not being an official replacement, played twenty five minutes of that grand final. <laughs> I mean, bozo. <laughs> and and it led to the the calls for the demise of that that rule. And this was coming from from the top of the game with with John Quayle saying that the league can no longer introduce rules that it can't police. And after last Sunday, it's fairly obvious the headbin cannot be successfully policed. (laughs) I mean, you could try. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Cliff Cliff Lyons got the Clive Churchill. He had an absolute blinder, I thought. Yeah, so he did, especially in the first half. Like I, I think he made the real difference there. I didn't realize it was that fast at that age. Mm. It was quick. Yeah. But a, a lot of the talk was that Kevin Ward deserved it. I thought he was outstanding. Yeah. Um, really good. C- considering he was, he just hopped off a plane from England two days before, 
playing in like 31 degree heat. If you think Sam Burgess is hard to understand, watch the post-match interview with Kevin <laughs> Ward. And you're right about him being the hardest of hard men. Oh, yeah. I was, I was uh, carrying him in my <laughs> lounge room. And actually, Channel 10 did give the, their Man of the Match award to Kevin Ward, which that was weird in itself, them, them having a separate award. Yeah, it is a rival. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, there, there was... As we mentioned before, there was just an air of inevitability of the whole thing. Uh, Manly's re- reaction seemed to be more relief than sheer elation. Yeah, I got that vibe too. And, and Canberra, like, they were disappointed, but it wasn't junior 89, you know. Yeah, it was yeah. like Wayne Bennett even said, today the better side won. You don't slash your wrist when that happens. I think their first half, they were they, they put in a good fight mm. and then just class wore them down yeah. second half. But. What about like the style of play though? It was like watching a different game. Yeah, the five meter rule. Yeah, I actually enjoyed the five meter rule. It sort of made them play quicker at the line. It was, it was almost oh, I hate to say it, it was almost like rarish the way they'd spread the ball. Mm. Sort of, sort of quick. Yeah, immediate passing and let. Now it's sort of a lot more. Well, you got so much more depth, obviously, but it's a lot more structure, which is, everyone knows that. Mm. But it's like it's obvious when you watch the eighty-seven yeah. grand final. I think. I mean, the last. Individual game we talked about at length was the the eighty five Challenge Cup, one of the best games I've ever watched in yeah. my life. This was the flip side of that, where you had that like freewheeling football, you had elements of bright football, but it was balanced with like just diabolical errors yeah. all throughout the game. Uh, uh, but that was one of the things I wanted to comment on was that the the impact of an error in that era was far 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 less. Oh, what. And this was true of the Challenge Cup as well. The amount of times players would run blind and be tackled into touch. Yeah. And like that was just, that was okay. Yeah, yeah, you had a crack. Whereas now that's like one of the, you know, most cardinal sins there is to do that. That makes me wonder about the zero tackle rule, whether it's too much, mm. like any errors, like, yeah. you know, a death knell for your game. Yeah, yeah. The funny thing was that. I, I think at one point the error count was like 15 to 5 against Manly. <laughs> yeah. And um, Cliffy made a few himself. Yeah, yeah. But the um, yeah, the football was interesting. It was, it was time machine stuff, but mm. I, I quite enjoyed it as well. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk a bit about the, the, the time machine stuff with some of the, the pre- and post-game game stuff. I'll, I'll start with the pre-match entertainment. This was uh, Norm Tasker writing about the day in Rugby League Week. As a spectacle, the day was brilliant. The 600-odd apprentices from the Navy and a variety of companies all over the state put on a precision show in bridge building before the game that would have done credit to an Olympic Games opening ceremony. The discipline involved was staggering. I love that the, the, this bridge building demonstration would have been out of place at the Olympic Games. What would... What? How did that come about? It's insane. <laughs> well, it is insane, but I mean, it was in the late 90s that you'd have like a number from a touring, you know, like stage production like as the <laughs> halftime entertainment, you know? I did love Julie Anthony's anthem. I wanted to talk to you about Julie Anthony. Like, what did she do besides sing every national anthem between like 1980 and Well, 95? I'll tell you, mate, because I wikipedia there after I watched her do the anthem. And um, she sang with the Seekers for a while. Oh, really? She fronted the Seekers. Actually, I think that rings a bell. Judith after, Durham's... After Judith. Uh, <laughs> Hiatus, yeah, say. yeah, and um, she's in a few stage productions and mm. you know, whatever. But all, all I remember is her at every sporting event I ever watched. The big shoulder pads, yeah, the, the, yeah. Great, the great perm, yeah, Love, lovely lady. <laughs> uh, and yeah, she did a great job. One thing I always thought the the little 
bombastic preamble, the da 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 da. I always that thought that was added to the anthem later. I don't remember it being <laughs> in, in anthems in the eighties, but there it, it was there in her rendition on the day. So <laughs> I guess I remember that wrong. The halftime entertainment was Norm Proven and Arthur Summons digging up a patch of the soil to take over to the SFS to bury on the pitch there. I, that's unreal. How good did Norm Proven look that day? Yeah, yeah. Strapping, mm. big, strong man. Oh, I, when I watched that, it, it made me like, it gave me pause to think, we've seen those two guys recreate that photo our entire lives. Yep. Like, we're probably never going to see it again, like, which is a bit sad. But, like, just think about that. Like, so, 87 Grand Final was, like, 24 years after 63. They'd already recreated it, like, for the Winfield Cup in 82. Like, think about how many times those two blokes have been, like, together on a stage or in a room just in some way reenacting that photo. Well, there's a story in the paper today about their bond and mm. how Arthur Summons was, um, you know, getting some serious health issues. Looked at in hospital, and he, and he was watching the ceremony on the TV. Uh, and he sent Norm Proven's uh, daughter a very nice message, you know, congratulating mm. the family on the achievement, all the rest of it. Yeah, the fact they still got this bond. Norm was on in a good way, you know. He, he's out. He's out of Sydney on the coast, and uh, it made me uh, tear up a little thinking mm. about these two. Lifelong friends. Yeah. And yeah. they'll never be forgotten. No. One's an immortal now. Yeah. Overdue. Mm. And that trophy, that picture will never, ever be forgotten. Yeah. Our entire lives, our kids will know it. Yeah. No, it's it's beautiful. One, one of my favorite Billy Smith stories where there was a parade of greats at, at one, I think it was a grand final in the early 80s, that uh, Billy Smith wasn't invited to. Uh, so, he he was drinking in the stands with Laurie Nichols. <laughs> <laughs> And Laurie Nichols said, you're as good as any of them. Get out there. So, Billy Smith, like, jumped the fence to to run on and join the procession, got in the middle of, of Norm Prover and Arthur Summons and said, they'll have to build a new trophy. <laughs> <laughs> if Laurie Nichols says you're as good as them, get out yeah. there. That's what, that's yeah. what you do. Um, just, just a few few more notes and, and you might have some of your own. Uh, I, I wanted to, to talk about the... The speeches. Me too. <laughs> so, so, so many things to hit on here. Uh, one thing I want to say, like when Dean Lance got up, uh, he said, Bob Hawke was on stage. He said, Prime Minister Hawke, distinguished guests. I feel somewhere along the lines, somewhere along the line, rugby league players lost the ability to say distinguished guests. I know. <laughs> I, I miss it. And it was more formal back then. Yeah. And what I noticed mostly about it was, I want to talk about the Winfield representative oh, yes, more than anything, yeah, but, yeah. but when I saw Arco speak... It was a real throwback. We still had the sixties style admin guys with mm. the with the parted hair and the um you know the yeah. blazer and like real club club guys you know and it was a it was, we're in the middle of two eras mm. at that point yeah we still had the past and we we're edging towards the future yeah <laughs> but Hawk was in the crowd with the uh, earphones and listening on the radio <laughs> yeah. so uh, in this age where like Bob Hawk has been completely deified and and every summer we collectively enable his drinking problem at the cricket. <laughs> uh, there's this real cult of, of Bob Hawke. He was like booed off stage just about. Yeah, when the, it's always rose-coloured glasses with mm. politicians. It's almost like the scrum rule. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I also think it's one of our great, great national traditions to whoever's in charge, boo them off stage <laughs> <laughs> at major events. Uh, Arco's speech... Was so Arco. I've got it. I've got it here. In particular, his his the thanks he gave to uh, the the cigarette company responsible for the day. 
I'd like to thank our sponsors, Winfield, very sincerely. And notwithstanding criticism of them from some quarters, I want to say that I believe they are great sponsors and we're very proud to be associated with them. Uh, let's talk about a backhanded thank you. <laughs> All right, everyone's saying that you're killing everyone, <laughs> but we appreciate the money. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and he was uh, he was angry about the, the way that cigarette sponsorship was taken away from him, like right to the end. Like in his book, he was he was so bitter about about the, the politicians making that rule. I wanted to bring this, this, the Winfield representative speaking, right? Mm. He was like just one of those stereotypical reptiles peddling death, right? Yeah. And just you could just tell it's just, just what you think a cigarette executive would be. Yeah, yeah. And these are pokey executives now. Mm. These are licensed club guys yeah. now. They're the same people. Yeah. Animals, mm. right? No conscience. Yeah. Make money at any cost. Mm. Death, destruction. Yeah. And we just sat there and let it happen for, what, 15 years? Yeah. And when Arco was talking about it, he, in addition with uh, other major sporting bodies, formed a, you know, I guess a kind of coalition of, of lobbyists to try to get the government to reverse the decision to ban uh, cigarette sponsorships. And they, I'll read this. I was the council's first chairman. One of our first initiatives was to distribute leaflets at many professional sporting venues, asking people, one, whether they objected to their sport being sponsored by a tobacco company, and two, did they believe cigarette sponsorship influenced people to smoke? The answers were overwhelmingly no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we'll we'll look back at the uh, 2019 grand final and then the least club representatives there mm. and go, how do we let this happen? Yeah, but, but I mean, at least you don't have like the head of aristocrat handing out like, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. the, medal, you know? Like, <laughs> the brand recognition I had of cigarettes oh, yeah. like, growing up, you know, like, I still, I still pine for the red and gold. Yeah. <laughs> was, was it an optical illusion that the, the red and gold just made the in goal Look bigger, or was it actually bigger? Because it looks so luxurious. Yeah, yeah. Those eighties Ingol areas. Yeah, yeah. I think I think they did have them bigger, but I think it did make it look bigger as well. Yeah. Um. The, the last the last speech I wanted to talk about was uh, Fatty's. Yeah, there's a lot of consternation out of this speech. It was. I, I think he meant it in a good way, but he he got up and said, "Oh, Canberra, it was a fairy tale, but someone tore the last page out." Which like very fatty, very very fatty. Like I think he meant well, but it came off a bit dickish. Definitely. <laughs> and he's, in his own book, he said he thanked everybody, including the King of Sweden, and forgot mm. to thank Bob Fulton. Yeah. <laughs> and I like how uh, Cliff Lyons' uh, speech, he said, uh, I'd like to thank Canberra for making the grand final. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how like, uncomfortable Cliff would have yeah. been on that stage. <laughs> I, I can't believe what a career he had. That, mm. was, that was just magic, that yeah. grand final. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to say about Manly, they... In, in their victory lap, they played their theme song at the time or club song at the time, which was um, waltzing the, to the tune of Waltzing Matilda. Manly Waringa, yeah. Manly I Waringa. Was great. Uh, I, I didn't actually know. Did you know that was their, their no. club song? No. I didn't know. And um, I, I thought it was very of its era. I liked it for that. But one thing I want to say is like how cool the Eagle Rock thing is. <laughs> I don't even particularly like that song, but I just think it's like it's yeah, just yeah. a really cool thing they have with that. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, so that was the grand final. In in the aftermath, Canberra, obviously, it was the end of one era and the start of, you know, one of the best years that any club ever had. Yeah. Um, for Manly, when, when we do 88, we'll, we'll talk about some of the things that went wrong. That It's a lost dynasty, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Team. Like, yeah. It took them to 95 to get it back. Mm. So, what happened? Yeah. 
Uh, all that will be discussed in a, in a future History Corner. In the immediate aftermath, they went over to play Wigan the next week in what was not the first official club challenge, but it was already being billed as that then, uh, mid-season for England, a bit weird. Was there any complaints about bodies and travel and <laughs> no none none at all you know? <laughs> um the whole the whole team went except for des hasler who was getting married i believe yeah he was getting married the the day of the game so he didn't make the trip but other than that uh yeah they they all fronted up even kevin ward who was back with castleford castleford they released him for the day to to play how cool is that yeah so yeah so that's that's the story of the 1987 season a lot of fun researching that hope you enjoyed listening to it oh, it was magnificent mate well done uh, I recommend everybody go and watch the grand final. Yeah, yeah, not not a vintage grand final by any means, but uh, but just nostalgia central. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.